Oh, my God. 
Five minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nahum Siegel. Welcome to a Monday. We're heading back to work on this Monday morning, and it is the nine days. Today is Rosh Chodesh Av. Today is Rosh Chodesh Av. All the traditional additions for Rosh Chodesh, of course. Today is Rosh Chodesh Av. Again, all the traditional additions for Rosh Chodesh. Um, well, here we are, nine days format. Rabbi Beryl Wine is going to join us in a moment with... Um, today's this lecture series. And we'll have guests coming up in the 7 and 8 o'clock hour uh, to update us on a bunch of things as well. We're here with a nine days format through uh, Tish Above, and then, of course, on Wednesday, a week from this Wednesday, uh, Matis Weingast will host our 10th uh, of Av special with the stories of Rav Shlomo Kalbach. And then we'll move on to our regular format once we uh, get to Israel Thursday and Friday of next week. Uh, with our friends from NCSY, looking forward to an amazing journey for a couple of days in the Holy Land. Um, I want to give a special shout-out to Rabbi Cohen at Aguda Shalom in Stamford, Connecticut, and Rabbi Cole at the Young Israel in Stamford, Connecticut. Saw both of them over Shabbos, and they continue to uh, build really an amazing Jewish community up there in Stamford. And a uh, kolakavod and a big good morning to both of them. And a special, special greeting and hello and thank you and in uh, a great Monday morning to uh, Sharon and Michael Feldstein, my dear cousins. Every time we go to Stanford, we have such an amazing time with them. And um, a special shout out uh, to Yosef and Hillary and Sarit and Emma and the entire family. And of course, to Tova as well. I'm not leaving Tova out, that's for sure. <laughs> So a, and a happy birthday to Tova. So a very special hello to everybody up in Stamford. Had a wonderful time as we always do, and it was just a um, a great Shabbos up there. And they continue to build an amazing Jewish community. Really, really an amazing Jewish community. And it's obvious that the work that Michael and many others have done over the years up there, I wouldn't say is finally paying off. I think they had some immediate payoff as well. But the fruits of their labor is really being recognized and coming to fruition uh, up there during this era. So a big shout-out to Stanford. All right, uh, nine days format here at JM and the AM. You know what that means. It means Rabbi Beryl Wine is going to dominate our spoken word format with some of his amazing and interesting lectures. This is actually a new lecture series, or I should say relatively new lecture series, that he gave in Jerusalem about Europe and the Jews. And there's a tremendous amount of history here that uh, will help us relate to what is going on now during this era, uh, that's for sure. Uh, and therefore, I present to you Rabbi Beryl Wine, Europe and the Jews. This, ser- this uh, specific lecture is entitled Pagan Europe and Its Impact on the Jews. Information about all of Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN. You can also go to the web at RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Rabbi W-E-I-N dot com. Pagan Europe and its impact on the Jews. Rabbi Beryl Wine, this is JM in the AM. Good evening, everyone. Uh, Shavua Tov. Thank you all uh, for coming on this uh, beautiful night in Jerusalem. This lecture series, Europe and the Jews, uh, will attempt to give us a chronological and ideological view of uh, Jewish life in Europe over two millennia and also of the attitude of the Europeans towards Jews and the events uh, that occurred 
both in Europe and actually in the Jewish community. But you have to realize that a certain amount of European history is necessary uh, because uh, Jews don't live in a vacuum and things don't happen to us only to us. Uh, It's all part of a heavenly pattern that governs all types of human events. So this uh, lecture tonight is uh, somewhat of an introduction uh, to uh, explain uh, where we're going and also uh, to talk about the earliest uh, history, so to speak, of Europe and of its uh, impact upon Jews, uh, most of which was very negligible at the beginning, but uh, beginning with the uh, arrival of the Greeks and the Romans uh, became uh, very, very influential and uh, part of the Jewish and the European story. Europe is defined uh, from the Mediterranean to the Baltic and uh, from the Atlantic Ocean uh, to the Ural Mountains. Uh, as continents go, it's a small continent in space. But uh, perhaps uh, in the history, uh, so far, it's been the most important continent in terms of human civilization, both for good and for better. Uh, And uh, the uh, strength of Europe was that for, until uh, really the last century, we could say, it was the dominant power in the world. And all of the world was influenced uh, by uh, Europe and by how Europe behaved towards uh, everyone else. Now, uh, in ancient times, let's say in the beginning of the time, uh, in Bayes Rishon, first temple times, so uh, then uh, Europe was uh, the dark continent. Uh, That's what they called Africa in the 19th century. Meaning we knew it existed, but no one knew who lived there. No one really cared who lived there, and it was unexplored. So who did live there, and how did they get there? So that's one of the continuing mysteries of uh, history and of sociology. Where do all these people come from? Uh, The biblical narrative is that Civilization began, and that's really the narrative that uh, most historians also accept, that civilization began in the Fertile Crescent, began in uh, what is today Iraq, in the Middle East. Uh, We have in the Chumash the story of the Tower of Bovel, and it says, And then people scattered, since they didn't speak the same language, They didn't have the same culture, so they moved. Now the nature of people is to move. People are transients. I saw that um, when I was now in the United States, the statistic is that uh, Americans will move at least three or four times in their lifetime. Because we are basically nomads. Uh, That somehow is within our DNA. So that's why we like to take cruises to China and we like to see the whole world because of the fact that we are wanderers. And usually the more secure and the more wealthy the person is, 
the more the person wants to leave home. It's almost a psychological thing. So uh, people scattered all over the world. Not only that, there were different races. Uh, People looked differently. Uh, The Asiatic people, uh, the Negroid people, the Caucasian people, people look differently. And uh, that's part of the uh, process of humanity, even though we don't quite understand what caused that, whether it was environment, uh, genetics, whatever it is, but that's what it is. So basically, uh, Europe uh, in its infancy as we know it was composed of Caucasians, of white people who were hunters, and who were pagans. Now the idea of paganism, why intelligent people should believe in uh, you know, all sorts of gods, uh, but paganism uh, exists today in the world, and the uh, great extent for the first few thousand years of civilization, almost everybody was a pagan. And, but there were different forms of paganism. You know, nusachashkenaz, nusachsvar. When it comes, when it comes to belief, you know, there is never one total belief. People don't respond that way. People adjust faith to their own uh, needs and, ide- and ideas. And uh, paganism uh, existed in the Middle East. And the time we see Avram Avinu at the time of Nimrod rebels against paganism. Uh, we see that the entire Torah, so to speak, the basic rule of the Torah is don't be a pagan. The Rambam says in his famous explanation of mitzvot, of the commandments of the Torah, he said all of the commandments of the Torah come to deny paganism. And therefore when you have certain specific commandments that seem to us not to be very logical, for instance he discusses uh, the eating of milk and meat together. So there was a time when people thought that was a health matter, but that's not true. So then what's wrong with having a glass of milk or a steak? And Rambam says that what's wrong with it is that that was a pagan practice. And the pagan practice was to take a, a, a meat animal, usually the mother, and cook it in the milk or to take rather the calf and cook it in the milk of the mother. And that was seen as, so to speak, a spiritual experience and not merely a culinary experience. And ever the Rambam says, so the Torah came and said, Lo mo, you shall not cook the calf in its mother's milk. That's because of paganism. It's been expanded in our time by the Rabbonin and the Gemara. We learn it became a uh, general separation of dairy and meat uh, dishes, etc., etc. But the origin is paganism, the defeat of paganism, and the Torah has many, many statements to that effect. Lo sifnu don't go to the idols, don't pray to the dead, don't have superstitions. Don't believe in witchcraft, because those are all pagan ideas, very strong pagan ideas. And they're so strong that uh, 
without being too controversial here on the first lecture, I would still say that some of it has seeped into current day Jewish society. And that's not really uh, what the Torah intended for us. So there were different paganisms. Every group of people, the, the, the people divided themselves somehow into tribes because tribal affiliation is also a human quality and it exists until today. Europe even today is a collection of tribes, many of whom don't like each other and haven't liked each other for thousands of years. Uh, the uh, Balkan Wars that existed in the 1990s uh, were basically tribal wars. The Croats, the Slovenes, the Serbs, the Montenegrins, these, uh, the, uh, those who lived in Kosovo, you know, those are all old tribes that never got along with each other. Why don't tribes get along with each other? Because of territory, because human beings are territorial. Just ask your vada by it. <laughs> Uh, human beings also are greedy. They don't appreciate what they have. They want what the other person has. And therefore the drive is always to acquire from others what they feel they're lacking. And human beings are violent, as, we're, as we are well aware of. And if you give them a cause, and the cause can be uh, religion, The cause can be nationalism, the cause can be revenge. Uh, Any cause is sufficient to evoke a violent streak in people. So Europe is full of tribes. Uh, Later we'll see uh, Julius Caesar in his famous works on his wars. So he describes the Gauls and the Huns, the Visigoths, all of the tribes that he had to deal with and conquer and bring them under Roman rule. But Europe is full of separate tribes. Just as in the Middle East, it is all separate tribes. Those are not kingdoms. Those are not countries as we think of a country or a nation state today. So it says... uh, Avimelech was the king of the Philistines. The Philistines are a tribe. And the Canaanites were a tribe. And the Amorites were a tribe. And uh, and the Jewish people in their uh, search for diversity, so we had 12 tribes. And uh, this tribal affinity created in the pagan world different pagan gods. So you have conflicting mythologies. Uh, because the story of the gods, human beings had to know that in order somehow to relate to nature. And nature is unpredictable. It's often dangerous. I mean, we're not talking about a world that had uh, lighting or running water, uh, medicine, none of that existed. And uh, so then and you have wild animals running all over. And therefore, it became necessary to construct this mythology. So I'll give you an example of European mythology that exists until today. Tomorrow is what day? Not, uh, by us, it's Yom Rishon. But uh, by everybody else, it's Sunday. Sunday is the day of the sun god. 
Monday is the day of the moon god. Wednesday, because there was the chief god in the Norse, uh, in the Scandinavian mythologies, was a man, was someone by the name of Woden. So it was Woden's day. And Thursday is Thor's day. Saturday is Saturn's day. So that is that has become part of our culture. We don't even think twice. Uh, the rabbis were always careful, you know, to uh, warn us against secular dating. I mean dates, not dates. <laughs> they warned us against that too, but it was a little avail. Um, because of the fact that it's not only that uh, 2015 is not a Jewish date at all, and in fact it is a Christian date that's been accepted in society, but even to say Wednesday or even the days in a month, uh, January is the god Janus, and March is Mars, and then the Roman emperors got involved, so July became Julius Caesar made July, Augustus Caesar made August, September was the seventh month that now became the ninth month because Julius Caesar and Augustus inserted their months in the calendar. October is the eighth month, December is the tenth month, so we don't give that any thought whatsoever because we are so accustomed that that way it is. I mean, that's can't do business without knowing when September is or when Thursday is. But uh, traditional Jews always said Thursday is Yom Chamishi, and when the month is Mar Cheshvan, and the year is 5776. According to our count, when the count began, that's a different lecture from which you are not paying. <laughs> so the pagans had uh, conflicting ideologies, conflicting religions. Uh, the, the gods of Troy and the gods of Greece. So whenever uh, there was a war, uh, the mind imagined, the pagan mind imagined that the gods were fighting. And what paganism did is it took the gods and made them humans. And not only made them humans, it made them bad humans. Robbers, murderers, womanizers. The gods are the worst people you can imagine. Capricious. Well, if the gods are like that, so then the people also are like that. If that's our concept of the gods then it's going to be very difficult to have a different concept. And that's why Avram Avinu is such a revolutionary, because he uh, envisions God uh, not in the terms that the pagan world envisioned gods. He'll say to God, The judge of the world should not do justice. Well, no pagan would expect their gods to do justice whatever their definition of justice was. Because that was not what the gods were. The gods were selfish. The gods were violent. The gods cheated on each other. And so, therefore, that is how the pagan civilization developed. Now, there were exceptions. There was an exception in Egypt where there was a flash of monotheism 
by Eknaten, one of the Egyptian pharaohs. Uh, basically, we will see an evolution in paganism. Uh, they, so to speak, have to outgrow the basic ideas of paganism, but they keep the form of paganism. And that's what Europe was in pre-Christian times. That's what it was 2,000 years ago. Uh, but it was a wild place. And again, the countries are uh, tribal. The Huns uh, came from Germany. The Franks came from France. That's where these countries got their name. The Angles got their name. were England. The Scots were from Scotland. The Celtics were a soccer team. Uh, they all... Uh, they were all different tribes, and different tribes had different languages, and they had different gods. Now, we don't know, uh, for instance, uh, if you've ever been in England and they took you to Stonehenge, where you got these enormous monuments, what are they? Who made them? For what purpose? So that's, uh, you know, you can get a PhD thesis if you come up with an answer. No one knows. But for instance, in the Torah it says, Lo sokim asher asher Do not establish any of these monuments, great stone structures, because God, this, that's not, that's paganism. The Gemara itself asks the question, why did Yaakov Avinu establish a monument? Right? Yaakov made his stonehenge, so to speak. How was he allowed to do that? The Gemara answers, uh, which is a difficult answer, subject to many, many interpretations, but I think the question remains stronger than any of the answers, is that what was forbidden to the children was permissible to the fathers. Uh, Some say, I saw Rav Hirsch and others say, that, so to speak, uh, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov are the beginnings of monotheism. They're the beginnings of the development of Judaism. They're the beginnings of Judaic thought. And therefore, uh, what was permitted to them would not be permitted to the Jewish people after they accepted the Torah, after they have Moses as their instructor, after, so to speak, the entire idea of Judaism and monotheism is full-blown already. But in any event, it's, it's obvious what the Torah tells us. We are not allowed to make a Stonehenge. But all over Europe we have all of these artifacts of pagan Europe. And uh, this was a uh, connection, so to speak, with the paganism that existed in the Middle East. But it seems that the paganism in the Middle East was of a higher form, had more intellect involved in it. And that's why we will see that Greece and Rome, even though they were pagan, and nevertheless were developed civilizations, whereas the other pagan civilizations remained primitive almost to the end. They did not advance in any of these things because their concepts uh, were different. They didn't blend together uh, with the ideas of the paganism that existed in the Middle East. Now, the, we have references in the in Tanakh say a commercial in Treosar, in the book of the Twelve Prophets, for which there is a great book explaining everything that Rabbi Amsel will be glad to sell you. 
but there it says uh, it mentions Tzorfat, Sfarad now in modern day Hebrew Tzorfat is France and Sfarad is Spain did the Novi we're talking about the Novi uh, before the destruction the first temple times uh, did they know of, of France did they know of Spain or is it those were names of local places that Jews later gave to countries that they came from there are two opinions for change there are different opinions as to how that worked now for instance we have the word Tarshish Yonah wants to go to Tarshish now where's Tarshish so some say Tarshish is where Casablanca is today in other words the end of the Mediterranean the westernmost uh, space of the Mediterranean most uh, people were afraid to uh, cross the Straits of Gibraltar because they believed that the world was flat and you would fall off the edge and in the Gemara it's called the Okeanus Hagadol, the great ocean now in Tanakh we have already the statement that the earth is round Ayoshev Alchug Horetz God who sits over the circle of the earth but people first of all people don't read the Tanakh it's not in the curriculum and secondly people don't always believe the Tanakh so they said, well, that's a metaphor. And it wasn't until the, uh, really the end of the 15th and the beginning of the 16th century when the Portuguese and Spanish sailors, Vasco da Gama and Columbus, etc., sailed across the Atlantic that it became apparent that the world was not flat and you weren't going to fall off the end. But where was Tarshish? So the simple explanation, the most logical explanation, is Tarshish is the Syrian port that exists today near Turkey in the Mediterranean. And then later the word Tarshish was taken by Jews that traveled. And they, and they called it, uh, we have that in the United States, New York, New England, New Haven. All of the English cities, the names of the English cities were transported to the United States by the English who settled there. So that's a common thing. And therefore we could say that Sfarad and Sorfas referred to areas within the Mediterranean basin that were known as that in the time of the Novi. But later when the Jews traveled, and they settled in Spain, and they settled in France, so they called it Sarfas and Svarad. So you can take your pick there. So if, if, for instance, they really meant France or Spain, so then even at first temple times, Jews were aware of Europe. And not only that, the Posig says that they did business, Kananim, that they were merchants to these places. They did trade, and the tribe of Zvulun was famous for the fact that its merchant ships uh, traversed the entire Mediterranean. So uh, then the Jews did trade somehow there, but we have no record of it. 
But we have a great legend. Uh, legends are uh, legends are not history, but legends are things that people love. And usually there's a kernel of truth in every legend. The rest of it is made up. It's like a rabbi's sermon. <laughs> there's a bit of truth, and then there's a lot of verbiage. Uh, so, uh, for instance, I always use the example that there are legends about the Chafetz Chaim and there are legends about Richard Nixon. And neither of them are true, but they certainly characterize the person. You don't say the same legend about Nixon that you say about the Chafetz Chaim. So there is a... Uh, there is some basis to legends. So I want to tell you a great legend. There was a Jewish community in Europe called Shum, Shin Vav Mem. That stood, that was the acronym for three little villages at the time that were governed by the Jews in, as one kihila. The Shin was Shapiro, the Vav was Vermaiza, the Mem was Magenza. Now those are all Jewish names that still exist today. You have people named Shapiro, Magensa, etc. Shapiro is the city of spires. And Vermeise is the city of worms. Which in German was Worms. And Magensa was the city of Mainz. These three Jewish communities were destroyed in the first crusade. Now when bad things happen to us, you know there's a there's a career that you can have uh, writing books about why bad things happen to good people. In fact, there are people who have made it a career to write such books. Because we don't, how can it be that these three wonderful communities, Rashi studied in the yeshiva in Mainz, Rabbeinu Gershom or Agolo was established the yeshiva in Mainz, uh, great communities, they were destroyed in the First Crusade, massacred. Why them? There were other Jewish communities that the Crusaders passed by. Didn't stop to kill. So that's always a question, right, on all tragedies, on all difficult situations. Why? Why this person? What, what happened here? And especially we are believers in Hashgaha Pratit, that uh, things don't just happen at random. And somehow, somewhere, there is some reason for what happens. So even though for us it's not clear, the whole world is illogical, makes no sense, but that somehow in God's great plan, it fits. So why Shapiro Vermeizem against it? So there's a great legend that when Ezra HaSofer brought back the Jews to the land of Israel at the beginning of the second commonwealth there were these three Jewish communities were already in existence meaning that there were Jews in Europe not only in Europe on the Rhineland on the Rhine River in uh, 400 before the common era 350 before the common era and these were communities now Ezra was uh, like the Jewish agency uh, singularly unsuccessful in bringing about Aliyah. He tried to bring the Jews from Bovel, 
out of maybe six, seven hundred thousand Jews, he was only able to bring forty-two thousand, and he didn't bring the cream of the crop. Uh, the Talmud teaches us Asora Yuxlin Olam Mabovel. Ten stages of legitimacy came. So the Gemara says Mamzerim, Shtukim, Avodim, all sorts of questionable people. They're the ones that came there to Israel because the Rabbanut has to be busy. But the Shane Eden, the fine good Jews, they stayed in Bavel. They said, it's good here, why should we go home? And the Gemara says, Loola Ezra. Ezra did not come to Eretz Yisrael at Yosef Bovel Kesolis Nikiah. Bovel was perfect, meaning that if somebody said they could prove they came from Bovel, they never checked his legitimacy because everyone in Bovel was perfect. It was the Borough Park of its time. <laughs> so Ezra, the legend is that Ezra sends, I don't know how he sent it, the Israeli post office wasn't any better then than now. But somehow he sends a message to the Jews in Shapiro, Vermeiza, and Mainz. And he says, come back to Yerushalayim with me. We're going to rebuild the second temple. We need people. We need bodies on the ground. Come. And they wrote him back and they said, listen, we're in great shape here. Everything here is good. Why should we bother? We're not coming. And the legend is that uh, uh, 15, 1800 years later, uh, the Crusaders took care of them because that was their attitude. Now that's a legend. And the only reason I bring up the legend is not for the obvious lesson of Aliyah, but the reason I bring up the legend is that according to the legend, the Jews were in Europe already before the Second Temple. How did they get there? Why were they there? That has never been explained. So uh, probably this legend has to be chalked up to fantasy. But again, the fact that such a legend exists can somehow give us an idea that even in ancient times, Jews were aware of Europe and Jews sought to live in Europe and that Europe gave them opportunities that, so to speak, the Middle East did not, which will explain a lot of what we're going to talk about over the next few uh, Saturday nights as well, God willing. So uh, Europe is this uh, pagan society, tribal to an extreme, and uh, the Jews have some sort of relationship with it, though um, probably a very nebulous one, because uh, the whole civilized Middle East has almost no relationship with Europe. Uh, To them, again, as I mentioned before, it is the dark continent. It's not something that's real. Now what happens is as follows. The, uh, The Jews feel that there is a bigger world out there than the confines of the land of Israel. That was one of the results of the destruction of the first temple. In the time of the first temple, Jews were farmers. The whole country was based on agriculture. We see it in the Chumash and in the Tanakh, all of the blessings are agricultural blessings. 
all of the ideas and the myriad halachas which exist are all agricultural. Uh, in our time, agriculture is very important, but it's not the basis of the Israeli economy. It's not the basis of many economies. It's a necessary economy because you don't have what to eat. You don't have what to eat. If you don't have uh, food, uh, you know, then you can't work your computer. But it does not play the role in terms of manpower and in terms of emphasis that it once did. The United States also was a rural agricultural country until uh, the late 1800s, even the beginning of the 1900s, till it became urbanized. So uh, Europe is uh, hunters, it's not agriculture. It's a different economy, different way of dealing with things. And uh, all of the sociologists say that in the stages of civilization, eventually the hunters became farmers. And eventually the farmers became city dwellers. And eventually the city dwellers bought farmland to live in the suburbs. But that uh, this progression took place. So uh, the, uh, the Jews uh, were uh, in agriculture. If they're in agriculture, then you're st- basically bound to the land that you have. You can't be a farmer and live, uh, let's say, near Beersheba and uh, expect that you're going to somehow uh, do business this before refrigeration, before shipping, before anything. You're not going to sell, uh, you know, flowers in Paris the next day. So because of that, uh, Jews were localized. They didn't think in universal international terms comes the Churban by Yisrishon, the destruction of the first temple. It comes uh, as a shock, an enormous national shock. How could God destroy his own house? The house where uh, miracles occurred daily. Um, God's name is on the house. How could he destroy that? And that, in in essence, was the Jewish uh, safety belt during uh, First Temple times, they felt that no matter what crimes they committed, uh, no matter how evil they behaved, no matter how warped their social conscience was, God would let it pass because he couldn't afford the desecration of his name, so to speak, that the destruction of the temple and the sending of the Jewish people to exile would occasion. Now the prophets warned the prophet said, to the great extent, don't count on God. God is going to be God without the temple. And God is going to be God without you here in the country. You have to count on yourselves. Rachatsu, Hizaku, cleanse yourselves. And Jewish people ignored it. Because they were confident that God would not allow it to happen. Even when the prophet Yirmiyahu uh, tells them in advance all the details as to what's going to happen. How Bovel is going to come, the Vuchadnezzar will come and destroy them. They put him in jail because they don't want to hear what he has to say. And rather they want to listen to the false prophets 
who say everything is going to be splendid. Everything's going to be wonderful. Don't worry. God won't do it. Now, just to digress, but uh, there's a certain failing uh, that we all, that we see, people say God will help, you know. God won't let it happen. And uh, many times that just becomes an excuse. It becomes a, a cop-out for our not having to do anything. And then if you say that that's the case, so then you're accused of being at best a heretic or a non-believer. So I remember I once had an experience that uh, it was before Pesach. That's when I had my yeshiva in Muncie. And the yeshivas are always behind in money. And by Pesach, I, I was determined somehow to pay up all of the debts, certainly to the salaries of the rabbeim, etc. And it was a very hard time for me. And I went to see a Jew who I did a great favor for. And he was a very wealthy man. And I figured that he would have uh, compassion on me. Every rabbi has to have a little naivete. So I went to see him and I told him my plight. I said, you know, I need X amount of dollars and I need it by Pesach and I am, please uh, help me. So he said, no problem, rabbi. Took out his checkbook and he wrote out a check and gave me the check. So my policy in life is that if somebody gives me a check, I never look at it in front of the person who gave it to me. But here, some my peripheral vision showed me that he forgot a zero. And evidently, uh, my disappointment registered on my face. So he said to me, Rabbi Wine, don't worry, God will help. And I said to him, that's my speech, not yours. I tell people God will help. You write checks, I tell people God will help. So we have a tendency, you know, God will help. By the way, he took back the check and he did, he added the zero. But that's our nature, right? So, you know, uh, God certainly will help us, right? But he can't help us if we don't have an, uh, an army. He can't help us if we don't have an economy. He can't help us if we don't do what we're supposed to do. And the, the Chazon Ish wrote regarding learning Torah, he said, only when a person exhausts all of his mental and physical faculties in learning Torah does heaven come to help. But until then, they don't want to, you don't want to, you want to know how to learn, go learn. Don't dive into God, go learn. So the Jews felt that they were in good shape because God was going to help. God did not help them. Sent them into exile. Now going into exile changed their world view. They saw an outside world. They no longer were farmers. Because when you came to Bovell, how could you be a farmer? You didn't have any land. So Jews, because of the exile, became what they became. Traders, merchants, uh, a, a, a primitive form of banking, uh, service industry people, tradesmen, and therefore the whole situation changed. And because of that, therefore, they looked at the world differently. And if they were aware that there were, let's say, markets in uh, Europe, so then Europe was a place. And uh, 
we know that uh, there's a certain adventurous spirit amongst all of the those that go down to the sea in ships. And the Jews were merchants in ships, sailors, uh, tribe of Zvulun, and later the tribes in Ethiopia until they settled. They were all uh, shipmasters, and that creates an industry by itself because you have to supply the ships. And therefore, it is very possible that Jews reached Europe. Sometimes you reach it uh, by uh, intent, and sometimes the boat gets uh, shipwrecked offshore. And you discover that somehow there's a place there. But the influence of Europe on the Jews in Second Temple times, when Ezra existed, was minimal. Apparently they knew it was there, because already the Greeks uh, existed in the time of Ezra. Alexander the Great would come to the land of Israel and meet Shimon Atzadik, the the Anshe Knesset Agdola, the men of the Great Assembly. So they knew Europe was there, and they had intercourse with Europe. They dealt with Europe, but uh, that was Europe on the Mediterranean. You have to remember Greece and Rome are basically Mediterranean countries, much more than they are European countries. Europe, the great vast continent, still remained the dark continent to the Jews. They didn't have any intercourse with them, didn't do business with them, and those kind of... They were not... uh, The difference in civilization between Europe and the Middle East was enormous. A little like the third world countries that existed after the Second World War uh, being compared to the economies of the United States or of other great countries. They were primitive. And therefore, uh, a primitive country is there to be exploited. It's not there to be raised to any level. That was the problem that existed throughout the world, and to a certain extent exists even today. So the Jews had no, uh, no illusions about Europe. They didn't see themselves as Europeans. And the paganism, the primitive paganism of the European tribes certainly was a great turnoff. Now, Jews worshipped gods. Jews were influenced by paganism. But their paganism was sophisticated. And we'll talk about in the next lecture about Greece and Rome. That's a different type of paganism. That's already an intellectual paganism, if you will, which exists today in the world. Today it's a secular paganism, and it's an intellectual of secularism, which has made inroads, deep inroads into the Jewish people. But the paganism of Woden or Thor, that that didn't register with them at all. That never was a problem to them. And even when the Jews came to those countries, and the pagans still existed, since Christianity didn't, they convert everybody at one time. Uh, the Jews never felt that that somehow was something that they would be interested in. Whereas when the Greeks and the Romans came, the Jews were very interested in the Greek gods. And they're very interested in the Roman gods. Because that represented an intellectual paganism. And Jews always respond to things that at least are labeled intellectual. And therefore, uh, 
they were able to make such inroads. So to sum up the uh, situation was that Jews in first temple times probably had some knowledge of uh, the existence of Europe. Uh, they, uh, part of the reason is because there was a great traffic in slaves in uh, the ancient world and uh, could very well be that uh, uh, slaves were taken from Europe and brought to the Middle East uh, and uh, therefore there, there would be some knowledge of the fact that uh, this continent existed and had people in it but the Jews really had very very little to do with it Europe on the other hand will have to develop and that's the story of the Greeks and the Romans and then later of Christianity in creating this monolithic uh, enormously influential continent that ruled the world for uh, almost two millennia and uh, then the Jews would really have to have something to do with it and the Jews would live in that continent continue to live there today precarious as it is and the history of that continent with the Jews is not a pleasant one there's a book called uh, Europe and the Jews written by a Catholic priest Malcolm Xavier Hay H-A-Y it's an outstanding little book that details of the anti-Semitism of Europe from the beginning of its existence until the Holocaust. I imagine we could add another chapter now about the anti-Semitism of Europe uh, after the Holocaust uh, and the uncertain state of Jews who still live in Europe but who live there in a state of fear. There was a, uh, an article in the Atlantic Monthly uh, uh, right after the uh, Charlie Hebo uh, French uh, massacre in Paris, uh, written by uh, an American Jew who lived in Israel, I think, for a year, uh, and who uh, claims at the beginning of the article that he's an avowed leftist and that uh, he disapproves of the policies of the Israeli government. So that's in order to clear the decks so, so that people will read the next part. But the next part is that Europe is gone as far as the Jews are concerned. And that to think differently is really whistling past the graveyard. You're really fooling yourself. So that if you read all of this, you read the article, you read Hayes' book, you get a feeling of the fact that somehow... The Jews who lived in Europe for 2,000 years and who were such a part of European civilization never were part of Europe, never were accepted in Europe, never had the degree of confidence or security about themselves in Europe that they have had in other places in the world that American Jewry had for a while. That never existed in Europe, no matter what. And uh, therefore, uh, the idea of this lecture series is to point out how in each and every different period of European history, beginning next week with the Greeks and the Romans, uh, how uh, the, the ideas, the actions, the behavior, the worldview affected the Jews and how the Jews reacted to it 
and what finally happened because of it. Sometimes good things happened, uh, but most of the time it ended up uh, to be very tragic and sad. It ended up to be very dysfunctional. And that this long story of Europe and the Jews is really one long a tragic uh, Greek play in which uh, the good guys uh, always lose and that it becomes a ticket for demagoguery, hatred, bigotry, etc. So this has been the introductory lecture to uh, this uh, series. And next Saturday night, God willing, I hope to talk to you about Greek and Roman uh, how the Jews reacted to them and to their ideas, which is already very well documented. We don't have to rely on legends and how that affected Jewish life and still affects Jewish life until today. This concludes this lecture by... And there you have it, Roy Beryl Wine, the very first of our uh, presentations for the uh, nine days spoken word format. I thank all of you who are tuned in around the world. Rabbi Beryl Wine's lectures are available at 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN. It's also RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. This lecture series, which is a recent one given in Jerusalem, is entitled Pagan Europe and its Impact on the Jews. This lecture, I should say, Pagan Europe and its Impact on the Jews and... Um, it is a uh, it is it is part of Rabbi Wine's series on Europe and the Jews. It was part one. We'll get to part two coming up here at JM in the AM Monday morning broadcast on this July twenty fourth, the first of Av. Today is Rosh Chodesh, everybody. Please keep in mind Malka Matol Basara for Shlema. Oh, sorry about that. That's our news from Israel lining up, uh, and. Um, our presentation of uh, Rabbi Wine's lectures is in a schus for Fuerschlema for her this morning, Malka Matelbas Sara, and your help with that is, of course, greatly appreciated. We will get to our Galitzal Israel Army Radio News coming up soon here at JM in the AM. It's a Rosh Chodesh morning, all the traditional additions for Rosh Chodesh, of course. We remember with um, with uh, with compassion, with sadness, and with anger. The lives of uh, Yosef, Chaya, and Elad Solomon. Yosef, Chaya, and Elad Solomon were murdered by a terrorist in Chalamish in their home. This company is past Friday night. Um, there apparently, according to the Jerusalem Post, has been a debate. Um about the release of the photos from that terror attack. As gory as they are, I honestly don't see the problem with those with those photos. Let the world see, not that the world cares, but let them at least see what the enemy continues to do to our people in their homes. The collective Jewish heart certainly uh, was pierced with pain this past Friday when this news came out. There is something about these terror attacks, these home invasions that result in stabbings and shootings that are just as horrible as every terrorist attack, terror attack is, and they are all horrible. There's something about this one just uh, hits home so, so very much. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio.
around the world on the web at the NahumSiegel.com, on the NahumSiegel Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Galitzal in the background. Galitzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast for a Monday follows next on this Rosh Chodesh morning. Where is our news? Is it coming up? I certainly hope so. We'll give it another moment to see what the story is. תושב קלקיליה, דקר ישראלי, סמוך לתחנה המרכזית בעיר. כתבתנו הדס שטייף. שוהה בלתי חוקי בן 21 מקלקיליה הגיע בצהריים אל חנות שווארמה ברחוב אורלוב בפתח תקווה. באמצעות סכין שהייתה בידו, הוא דקר בצווארו ישראלי בן 32, תושב ערערה. נהג רכב שהבחין בו, ניסה לדרוס אותו במכוניתו. אזרחים נוספים לכדו אותו, והוא עבר לחקירה לידי המשטרה. הפצוע פונה בידי מד"א לטיפול בבית חולים בלינסון בפתח תקווה, כשמצבו בינוני. מהחקירה עולה חשד כי מדובר באירוע על רקע לאומני. המשבר בין ירושלים לרבת עמון. ראש הממשלה בנימין נתניהו שוחח עם איש הביטחון ושגרירת ישראל בירדן והבטיח מנוהלים מגעים להחזרתכם לארץ. אני שוחחתי הלילה פעמיים עם שגרירת ישראל בירדן, ענת שליין, ועם איש האבטחה. אמרתי לשניהם שאנחנו מקיימים מגעים שוטפים עם גורמי ביטחון וממשל בעמן בכל הרמות, כדי להביא לסיום מהיר ככל האפשר של האירוע, להביא את האנשים שלנו לארץ. ואנחנו עושים זאת בנחישות ובאחריות. בתוך כך בירדן מאיימים בצעדים דיפלומטיים חריפים עם המאבטח בשגרירות שירה בנער הדוקר לא יועבר לחקירה. כתבנו ג'קי חוגי. גורם בממשלת ירדן אמר לעיתון ארד היוצא לאור ברבת עמון כי הממלכה תחריף את האמצעים הדיפלומטיים נגד ישראל אם זו לא תאפשר לחקור את המאבטח היורד. משפחת הנער ההרוג מוחמד ג'וואודה בן 17 טוענת כי הישראלי הוציא אותו להורג בדם קר ודורשת מהרשויות להטיל על המאבטח עונש מוות. ועל רקע המתיחות סביב הר הבית, משרד החוץ הנחה את השליחים הישראליים באנקרה ובאיסטנבול לעבוד היום מהבית ולא להגיע לנציגויות בשל המחאות על הצבת הגלאים. כתבתנו אילאיל שחר מוסרת שעם זאת, השגרירות והקונסוליה היו פתוחות לקהל והעובדים המקומיים הגיעו לנציגויות. חתנו ויועצו הקרוב של נשיא ארה״ב ג'ארד קושנר מצהיר בפני הקונגרס לא שיתפתי פעולה עם רוסיה. כתבתנו שירה נאות. בהצהרה ששלח קושנר לוועדות הקונגרס הוא כתב לא שימשתי ערוץ סודי לשיחות עם מוסקבה והוסיף לא שיתפתי פעולה ולא שמעתי על אף אחד ששיתף פעולה עם ממשלה זרה. קושנר התייחס גם לעסקיו הפרטיים ואמר שמעולם לא נתמך במימון רוסי. השבוע צפוי קושנר להעיד בחקירת ההתערבות הרוסית בבחירות. בדלתיים סגורות. יזמית הנדל"ן ענבל אור הצליחה לגייס 20 אלף שקלים ושוחררה ממעצר. עורך דינה אפרים דמרי שוחח בגל"צ עם רינו צרור. הסכום הוא בעצם סכום דרקוני, סכום שאין אותו ברשותה, בעיקר בעקבות כל העיקולים וכל מה שהיה לה בעצם נלקח, אין לה כלום. גם הבגדים שעליה הם כבר לא שלה. התחזית נאה עם עלייה קלה בטמפרטורות. אלה החדשות שעורכת גוני כהן. J.M. and the A.M. on a Monday morning. It's Rosh Chodesh morning. All the traditional additions for Rosh Chodesh. Keep in mind on this Rosh Chodesh. Ah, beginning of our nine days format, spoken word format. Right, Beryl Wine is uh, continuing his lectures. We do have a couple of guests who are going to be joining us coming up later on in this hour. And I thank you for joining us. Uh, it's Monday, nine days here at J.M. and the A.M. I thank all of you who are tuned in around the world and listening into our broadcast. It's much appreciated, believe you me. 
Uh, Rabbi Wine, and uh, we are presenting a brand new lecture series, I'm proud to say. Rabbi Wine has a lecture series uh, entitled Europe and the Jews. Europe and the Jews. And um, this, uh, this lecture that we're about to hear is entitled The Greco-Roman Empire. The Greco-Roman Empire. Rabbi Beryl Wine, his lecture is available at one 800 499-WEIN or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Rabbi Beryl Wine at JM in the AM. Tonight's uh, lecture is really based on Europe coming to the Jews. The rest of the lectures will be the Jews going to Europe. But tonight's lecture regarding the Greeks and the Romans is uh, the opposite in the fact that the Greeks and the Romans came to the land of Israel and they came to the Jews. Now, uh, Greece uh, had a different form of paganism. One would say a more advanced form. And in fact, uh, many of the intellectuals amongst the Greeks uh, no longer believed in paganism. Uh, Greek mythology was thought of as uh, literature, as prose, I mean, the, uh, the epic, uh, you know, of the Iliad and the Odyssey, Homer, and the uh, Greek plays, the tragedies and the comedies. Uh, so Greece was different, uh, whereas uh, the Middle Eastern paganism with which the Jews were acquainted was really very primitive and uh, was based purely on superstitions and on magic uh, the Greeks uh, had uh, a much more sophisticated view of it, even though their gods, uh, Zeus and uh, Apollo, etc., were also uh, no, um, no nicer, let us say, than any of the uh, Middle Eastern uh, deities. But uh, the Greeks did not harbor this type of paganism. And they saw themselves as uh, an advanced people. Now, beginning in the year 500 before the Common Era, uh, really the beginning of the Bayashani of the Second Temple, uh, there were two main uh, powers in the world, in the Mediterranean world. One was the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire absorbed the Babylonian Empire. When they absorbed the Babylonian Empire, they absorbed the Jews as well. And that's the story of Purim that we have. And uh, the Persian Empire ruled from uh, India on the east uh, all the way to uh, Turkey, Asia Minor uh, on the west. And then uh, the Greeks uh, were composed of many different little city-states. There was not a unified country called Greece. Uh, so there was uh, Athens, and there was Sparta, and there was Thebes, and uh, Macedonia, and all different little states who were busy always fighting each other. And uh, there, because they were so busy with themselves, uh, they were not a threat to the Persian Empire. And the Persian Empire expanded and continued to expand towards Europe, uh, coming close to 
what is today the the Bosporus, the Dardanelles, the separation between Europe and Asia. Uh, The Greeks uh, never got their act together. Now this all changed in about uh, 350 before the Common Era. So we have a problem of Jewish dating, which I'm not going to discuss now. I mean the dates of Jews. Well, I don't know how to. You know what I mean. <laughs> we have a problem with the other kind also, but uh, and uh, there arose in Macedonia a king by the name of Philip, and Philip uh, was determined somehow to unite all of these little Greek states and to make Greece the main power versus the Persians. Now, the rest of Europe is uncharted territory. Uh, The Greeks uh, held them to be barbarians, to be uh, uncivilized. All the tribes, everything that went on didn't concern them. The Greeks were not interested in expanding into Europe. They wanted to expand into Asia Minor, into the Middle East, into Africa. In other words, they wanted to control the Mediterranean basin. Philip of Macedonia was a great warrior, and he was a very wise king, and he had in himself great organizational ability, and therefore he was able to, over a period of time, uh, conquer and unite all of these little states so that out of Athens and Sparta and Thebes and Ithaca and all these little cities, there came one entity known as Elas, which was Greek. And uh, Greece uh, saw that its future lay in the east. Now, Philip died before he could do much about it. After uniting all of the states, he, uh, he passed away. It's a time when people didn't live long lives, and certainly kings didn't live long lives because uh, they were usually the most dissolute of people. And uh, too many women and too much alcohol will do it to you, especially when it's combined. (laughs) And uh, he had a son called Alexander. He wanted to get a teacher, a mentor, for Alexander. Now, Greece had developed great thinkers, philosophers. Uh, Before, Socrates, Plato, uh, really uh, the basis of much of Western philosophy and thought uh, dates back uh, four or five centuries before the Common Era. There was a man by the name of Aristotle, who was a philosopher. Now, a philosopher then not only dealt with the abstract ideas, but he dealt with uh, physics, with geography, with history, with what we call science. All of that was in the realm of philosophy. And uh, Philip had taken Aristotle, and he hired him to tutor his son Alexander. And Aristotle remained Alexander's mentor throughout his life. Uh, There is perhaps no uh, person, well, maybe it's an exaggeration, but uh, 
he is really one of the most important personages in all of human history. He's had enormous influence still today. And he had enormous influence in the Jewish world as well, as I will discuss in a few moments, I hope. And Aristotle had a view. He had a view of the universe. He had a view of creation. He had a view of science, of religion. And Aristotle officially was a pagan, but he was really not a pagan. Aristotle uh, uh, posited an idea called the first cause, that there's someone or something that was the first cause from which everything else comes, which is a step towards monotheism. And it certainly is a step away from paganism. And Alexander came under his influence. He was his teacher from the time he was a child. Now, Alexander does not live long. He dies at 29, but he uh, successfully conquered the world by that time. And he inherited uh, Philip's throne in Macedonia, and he inherited the fact that the uh, Greeks were united, and he was a great warrior, and all of his life he devoted himself to the idea that he was going to conquer the world. Now, his idea of conquering the world I think that this is a very important insight for us to realize, is that he is the first European of many who think that all the world should be European, who thinks that you're doing the uh, poor, ignorant natives a favor by forcing them to accept Greek culture. Now, this is a pattern in Europe uh, till our time. Europe knows better. So uh, when Europe was Christian, so then the idea was to make the whole world Christian. When Europe became secular, so the idea was to make the whole world secular. When Europe became imperialistic, so then everybody, you know, India had to be like Britain and Morocco had to be French. It's a, it's a mindset, and that mindset applies today. The European Union, you know, you, you have to be European. And if you're European, then it's not nice what you're doing. So it's a mindset, uh, and with that comes the idea later of noblesse oblige, that those who are gifted with great ideas, with intellect, with nobility, have an obligation to the poor, unwashed peasants to make them better people. That's a European mindset. And uh, pretty much an American mindset too. And it has great ramifications in all the ages that we will discuss. And it has great ramifications vis-a-vis the Jews. Because the Jews are always going to be the odd man out. They're always going to be the one that really is not interested in becoming European. And this will have ramifications uh, and remains so until today. So Alexander uh, embarks on his conquests and eventually he comes to the land of Israel. He comes to the Jews. The Greeks come to the Jews. The Jews didn't go to Greece. And when he comes to the land of Israel, 
there are different versions as to what happened. But whatever happened, the Talmud says that he met the, the high priest Shimon HaTzadik. So that would be about the year 325 before the Common Era. In any event, Alexander somehow took a liking to the Jews, uh, probably because of Aristotle. It seems that Aristotle had a great respect for Jewish intellect and for Jewish monotheism, because Alexander is a pure pagan yet, but Aristotle is not. And this will help explain uh, why, for instance, uh, many great Jews, beginning, not beginning, but the mainly, for instance, Maimonides, the Rambam, are Aristotelian. They adopt Aristotle, uh, not 100%, but they adopt Aristotle in many, many ways. And they had great respect for him. And the name Aristo, which is Aristotle, appears throughout rabbinic writings, especially in the Middle Ages. Now today, uh, you know, uh, Aristotle doesn't carry much weight anywhere in the world anymore because of the advances of science and technology and all sorts of things that have made his ideas uh, fairly irrelevant. But for uh, 2,000 years, Aristotle was the man. He wanted to know something. You know, what did Aristotle have to say? And so when Alexander comes to the land of Israel and Aristotle comes with him, uh, he uh, spares uh, the Jewish capital. He does not uh, raise it to the ground as he did to other capitals. He does not destroy the temple. He does not tamper with the Jewish religion. He makes no demands upon them. The only demand that he made was that they be subservient to his empire, which meant paying the taxes and allowing his troops to be billeted in the land of Israel. The Jews are overwhelmed by his generosity. Jews are not used to people being nice to them. So therefore, they're very appreciative when people are nice to them, present company excluded. So so what happened was that the Jews promised him, well, we're going to give you three gifts. So the first gift was that they called their firstborn children uh, that year, the male children born, they would all be named Alexander. And that's how Alexander a purely Greek name becomes a Jewish name. Now, uh, there are many non-Jewish names that have become Jewish names. Uh, The Jews are unaware of that. And in fact, uh, I heard a theory, you know, uh, in the Tanakh, we don't find a Jew with a name like mine, Dove. Nobody was named the bear in the Tanakh. And we don't find uh, anybody that was named uh, Zev, a wolf. We don't find such names. So how did those names become Jewish names? And the answer is that originally they were non-Jewish names. But eventually non-Jewish names came into the Jewish world because of the fact we lived amongst the non-Jews. And therefore... uh, uh, the name, so to speak, became sanctified. 
so uh, for instance we are blessed with having a uh, wonderful associate rabbi in our shul who's named ETL now ETL is one of the names of King Solomon and it's mentioned in Tanakh but people come up to me and say how come your rabbi doesn't have a Jewish name <laughs> but if his name was Berish or Wolf oh, that's a Jewish name <laughs> so uh, Alexander is a non-Jewish name but the Jews agreed that they would name their children Alexander and that's where you have the name till today Alexander, Sender it's a standard Jewish name and it's been that way for uh, 2500 years I've mentioned to you that, for instance, uh, the name Schneer, which is a famous Jewish name, great Hasidic Rebbe, is the first Lubavitcher Rebbe, was called Schneer Zalman. Schneer, and so Schneer Zalman is, Schneer is Senor, the Spanish name Senor, and Zalman is Solomon. But they became Jewish names. And, uh, if you know a woman named Sprinze, so that's Esperanza. And there are tens of such examples of non-Jewish names that drift into the Jewish world and become Jewish names. And so uh, names, uh, names evolve, except for the biblical names. So that was one thing the Jews promised Alexander. The second thing they promised him was that he didn't have to come and collect the taxes. The Jews would collect the taxes for him and wire the money to Athens. <laughs> now that created an entire industry about which we'll talk throughout the series called tax farming. Tax farming meant that a person bought from the government the right to collect the taxes in a certain area. So let's say I go to the Israeli government and I say I'm going to collect all the masach nasah for Rechavia. I say Rechavia, not Gula, because I want to make it pay, okay? <laughs> and I will give the government, let's say, uh, uh, 300 million shekel. Here's a check, 300 million shekel. I'll collect the money. And hopefully I'm going to collect 400 million shekel. And that's my profit. And throughout Jewish history, Jews were tax farmers. They bought rights from the government to collect taxes. Now, nobody likes the tax collector. That's not the, uh, you know, that's not the profession that people admire. And especially sometimes you have to use uh, uh, strong tactics to be able to collect the taxes. Uh, so the uh, Jews, uh, uh, because of Alexander and because of the fact that the Jewish government now was almost powerless because the Greeks controlled it. So the Jews uh, became tax farmers and uh, that led to... Uh, internal division we'll talk about the Hellenists most of the Hellenists were the tax collectors and uh, therefore uh, uh, to make a, re a revolution against the uh, Hellenists was not hard because most people didn't like them at all because they had bad experiences with them regarding taxes but that was one of the effects 
of Alexander of the promise to Alexander that he would not have to send tax collectors, they would send them the check. The third promise that they made to him was that they would change the Jewish calendar to conform to the arrival of Alexander the Great in the land of Israel. Now, Alexander arrives in about 325, 327. We don't know. We have to wait to see the movie, but we don't know exactly the day. But uh, the Jews, uh, the Talmud tells us, the Jews stalled on that promise, and they did not begin the new calendar until the year 312 before the Common Era. In other words, they delayed it 15 or 10 years because they wanted the new date to conform to 1,000 years after the exodus from Egypt. So the exodus from Egypt was in 1312 before the Common Era, and the new calendar begins in 312 before the Common Era. And the new calendar is called Minyan Shtarot, the count according to legal documents. And Minyan Shtarot coexisted with the other date. Our date is 5776, which is a traditional date, but we don't know what, how that came into being, but that's a, that's a lecture you didn't pay for. Uh, but the year 312 became year one to Minyan Shtarot. So uh, this year, which is uh, 2327 to Minyan Shtarot. And we have many, many documents throughout Jewish history of uh, uh, marriage ktubot uh, that are written to Minyan Shtarot, even of uh, divorces of Gitan that are written to Minyan Shtarot. It coexisted pretty much till our day. That today, uh, especially since the state of Israel, so they tried a new uh, uh, count here that, that exists in certain circles. How many years is it to the creation of the state? So we say 67. Or how many years is it to the uh, redemption of Jerusalem? So that's 48. So there are, uh, there are different sets of dates. J.M. in the A.M., Rabbi Beryl Wine on the Greco-Roman Empire in a relatively new series entitled Europe and the Jews. Rabbi Wine's lectures at 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, RabbiWine.com, RabbiWine.com. The Jewish world still recovering from the murder of Yosef Chaya and Elad Solomon. by a uh, young member of the enemy this past Friday night in their home in Chalamish. I recommend on my Facebook page, Nahum Siegel, there was a video of a um, member of the security forces describing why those in Arab communities in Israel do not need special security forces to guard them against the evil Jews. Check that out. I think you'll find it meaningful. 
Rosh Chodesh morning, 71 degrees. Don't forget Yalav and Halel and uh, Musaf. Special Torah reading, Baruch Hinafshi. It's Rosh Chodesh after all. 71 degrees, thunderstorms today and a high of 74. I want to thank Hannah Dreyfus from the Jewish Week, page three of the Jewish Week, a great article about what T-Mobile is doing to our listeners. There are listeners who are T-Mobile customers who like to call into our listen line to tune into the show. Excuse me, to tune into the show and to the network. They've gone ahead of T-Mobile and have developed a way, illegally I might add, to charge those who have unlimited calling for the call to our number when they call the listen line at 605-562-4400. Now I remind you, that there is no charge for that call. And I invite everybody to call in from anywhere around the world and use that number. So thank you to Hannah Dreyfus and the Jewish Week for uh, printing an article on page three of the of the newspaper this week outlining exactly what T-Mobile is doing and describing the situation to everybody. Uh, first day of our nine days format, I do want to remind everybody that... Um, Coming up at 9 a.m. this morning, it's an encore of the Israel Show. Uh, Mayor Weingarten celebrates 50 years of the return of the Jewish people to Jerusalem. He analyzes the holy sources of Jerusalem of gold that make it a modern tefillah and much more. The great Naomi Shemer's song, Yerushalayim Shal Zahav. Mayor Weingarten between 9 and 10 this morning, right after J.M. in the a.m. Yoni Pollock with his after further review and analysis of the latest news, highlights, and information in the world of sports. That'll be coming up um, at 10 o'clock. At 11 a.m., David Lichtenstein discusses self-driving cars in halacha, staying spiritually safe in the workplace and on business trips, and stem cell meat in halacha, M-E-A-T. So that's the story. More coming up here at JM and the AM. We'll welcome some guests a little later on this hour. Rabbi Wine's lectures will continue. Here at JM and the AM, uh, the Greco-Roman Empire is the one that we are uh, in the midst of as we speak. Rabbi David Goldwasser's words, Zechonishmas Harav Zev and Yosef Alevi, and Zechonishmas Esther Bas Rav Yosef Alevi, and for a zchus for a fuish lema for Malka Matol Bas Sara. Malka Matol Bas Sara. Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizot. Good morning. We read an interesting pasuk in Echa. They made it difficult for us even to walk in the streets. There is an individual that lives in Ofakim. He is always very careful concerning Shmira Senaim, seeing things that are appropriate. Once, he had an urgent matter to attend to, and he had to travel to Tel Aviv. On his way, he came across a scene that was Lotzanua, something that was inappropriate for him to see. At that moment, he recalled the words of the Shomer Amunim, Shim Adam If a person is going in the streets, Umizdamin and he comes across something that is immodest, inappropriate, and he's able to control himself, and he looks away. He should know, Shehu man 
Vihiha ace. It is the proper time in the moment. Shekobakasha, Shivakesh Oz, that any request that he is then going to ask, may Ace from Hashem Tiskabel, it will be accepted. He then immediately turned in the opposite direction and was Matzliach, he was successful in being Omed Benisayon, standing up to the challenge. The reason that he had gone to Tel Aviv was because his daughter was dangerously ill. She was in a hospital in Beersheba. The doctors had sent him to bring a special medicine that was only available from one place in Tel Aviv. At that moment, he remembered the words of the Shomer Emunim. He cried to Hashem to save his daughter, Mikol Pegara, from anything bad from going through any more yesurim or pain. He continued to the pharmacy where he was to get the appropriate medicine. He was almost there when his cell phone rang. His wife, who was with the child, was on the other end of the line. She was very emotional. In a minute passed before she could even speak. She said that just minutes earlier, there was a sudden change in the child's health. The doctors were shocked. They told her that if she'll continue on this course, there would be no need for the medicine. The tears of sadness became tears of joy. They both gave shvach v'hodoya, thanks and praise to Hashem. As it says in Tehillim, l'mocholi. You have transformed my lament into dancing for me. You undid my sackcloth, and you strengthened me with gladness. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser, bringing you morning chizuk. Have a nice day. JM in the AM on a Monday morning. It's Rosh Chodesh morning here at JM in the AM, and I thank you for tuning in, everybody. 71 degrees, thunderstorms, and a high of 74. We're going to check in with our friends at the Brooklyn Cyclones a little later on. Uh, they're getting ready for a whole bunch of stuff going on right after uh, Tisha B'Av, so we'll do that. Uh, meanwhile, we're continuing with our lecture. Rabbi Beryl Wine is in the uh, midst of a lecture entitled The Greco-Roman Empire. Greco-Roman Empire. Rabbi Wine's lecture is at 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. But this was all the influence of the Greeks, uh, and the Jews willingly accepted it because they thought thereby that the Greeks would spare them uh, the uh, consequences of being conquered. Now, what happens is Alexander dies. He went off to India. He went off to, you know, he's going to the end of the world to conquer everything. And he dies uh, at a very young age. And when he dies, uh, you have this enormous empire, and you have many people who claim to be his successor. His own uh, family fathered many children, but none of them were old enough, and none of, most of them were killed so that they wouldn't uh, cause problems. And uh, there were two main generals that he had. One was called Seleucus, and one was called Ptolemy. And they agreed between themselves that they'd split the empire. So Ptolemy took the southern part 
and especially the city of Alexandria, which Alexander had named after himself and was became like the center of commerce and culture. And the other Seleucus uh, took the northern part. And he was in Antioch in Syria and Damascus uh, in uh, what is today Baghdad, in that area. And so he had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. In between the northern and the southern kingdom is a little country that is strategically located in a very bad neighborhood. And each of the uh, empires wants to control the land of Israel. Now the Jews traditionally, for various reasons, always allied themselves with the Egyptian uh, emperor, with Ptolemy. The Talmud uh, calls him Talmai Amelech. Now, uh, if you can call somebody by his Greek name, now that, that was part of the invasion of the Greeks, is that they brought the Greek alphabet, the Greek language, to these countries. And in effect, the Greek became the international language, much as uh, French was one time the international language, much as English is the international language. Greek became the, uh, the language all over Israel when they dig up the, when the archaeologists are able to uncover uh, artifacts from uh, the classical era, they're all written in Greek. There is the signs in the synagogues are Greek. The signs in the temple were in Greek. And uh, Greek language, because you're willing to call your child Alexander, you cannot say I'm not willing somehow to uh, have uh, Greek language as part of our culture. And this got a boost from Talmai, from Ptolemy. The Talmud tells us that he took 70 scholars, of, uh, whether that's reality or, uh, or legend really makes no difference because out of it came something that certainly is reality. But he took 70 scholars and he put them in 70 different rooms and he had each one translate the Bible into Greek. And it, the Talmud records it as a miracle that the translations coincided. Some say the miracle was that he got 70 scholars to agree on anything. But, <laughs> but in any event, this becomes what is known as the Septuagint. Targum Hashivim, the translation of the 70. And it's a translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek. And the rabbis adjusted the translation uh, so that it wasn't quite literal in certain places because if it would have been literal, then it would have raised uh, theological and cultural problems. And this was a standard work. Targum We have it today as part of the Apocrypha, and it was well known. And through it, the Hebrew Bible became known outside of the Jewish people. And uh, the uh, effect, both on Jews and non-Jews, was substantial. Because now for the first time, 
uh, the Jews had to defend their Bible, so to speak, against non-Jews who were uh, conversant with it, who knew it, and who had questions and arguments and disputes, etc. We find this throughout the Talmud, uh, that uh, there was a constant give and take between the cultures. And uh, many Greek words found their way into Jewish life. Afikoman is a good Greek word. And there are many such words uh, that uh, fell into uh, common usage. So you have here, first time, a blend of cultures. The Greeks had a great effect on the Jews. And the Jews had less of an effect on the Greeks. Because the Greeks felt superior though they begrudgingly admitted that the Jews were something, that they were not barbarians. Now, uh, there arose amongst the Jews, the Jews that wanted to be more Greek than the Greeks, which is always what happens in a cross-cultural type of situation. Uh, the, uh, the most uh, French people are Jews who want to be French. Most German people were Jews who wanted to be German. Most American people are Jews who want to be American. So here you have people who want to be Greek. Now the Greeks were, uh, the Greeks were art, statues, uh, painting, color. So all of that rubbed traditional Jewry wrong because we are opposed to graven images. And uh, so uh, the great questions arose regarding sculpture, statues. Uh, the Greeks had theater. Now, part of the problem with the theater, uh, why the rabbis had such a negative effect, uh, ne negative view on theater, was because every theater performance was preceded by a sacrifice to the gods. That was like every baseball game is preceded by the national anthem. It was part of the ritual. So how can you go to the theater? It's it's uh, it's paganism. On top of it, the theater many times was nudity and uh, immorality. And therefore, we always find in the Mishnah and in the Talmud a very strong objection to theaters. And later, when the Romans came to circuses, because of the violence and, and uh, lewdness that was involved. But it came. For the first time, there were theaters. And uh, the Greeks uh, brought sports. They worshipped the physical body. When the Olympics were old already, and uh, so they glorified, and in glorifying the human body, uh, they were the first ones that openly objected to circumcision, because they said that was a uh, violation of nature, a violation of the human body, it was disrespectful, and uh, the, uh, all of this together created a culture uh, that basically became anti-Jewish. And uh, it, 
there were there was a substantial number of Jews it's estimated maybe a third of the Jewish population in the land of Israel that were Hellenist that adopted the Greek ways that did not circumcise their children uh, that, that participated in theaters etc etc and uh, attempted to sway the entire Jewish people uh, to follow in that path so the pressure was not so much from the outside as from the inside from the Hellenist Jews more than from the Greeks themselves now because of the continuing wars between the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom and the fact that the Jews always sided with the southern kingdom when the northern kingdom in about the year 180 before the common era uh, was successful and conquered the land of Israel took it away from the southern kingdom so now they attempted to forcibly Hellenize the Jewish people and to do so they erected a uh, statue of Zeus in the temple uh, they uh, sacrificed pigs on the altar uh, they forbade circumcision on the pain of death they created a uh, forced culture and this was supported as I mentioned now by the Hellenists and the Hellenists were wealthy they were the tax farmers uh, they were the ones that were closest to the Greek government whereas the masses of Israel uh, were basically uh, not with them and this is the story of Hanukkah uh, Matisio and his sons mount the revolution and they have a long series of wars but finally they are able to defeat uh, the Syrian Greeks, the Northern Empire uh, for a variety of reasons the Greeks had to withdraw and uh, but that's a big but their culture did not leave the country and therefore you find that all the Hashmanoim kings had Greek names Alexander Yanai is Alexander Janius Shalom Tzion Amalka is Queen Salome they all had Greek names they all had, and Greek culture remained in the country and the rabbis had to deal with it some of it they adopted some of it they rejected but it was a constant struggle and uh, we uh, for instance we have uh, western culture today how much do we adopt and how much do we reject so for instance the, the, the Greeks brought certain technology so they never rejected the technology but if you accept the technology you got problems right that's the smartphones today so a kosher phone this phone that phone but what happened here is that uh, the, 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 this culture of the outside came to the inside now it's part of us you know on, on my old uh, CDs no one announces turn off the cell phones <laughs> so uh, the uh, the Greek culture remained more coming up as Rabbi Beryl Wine continues the um, exploration for us of the uh, history of the uh, of the Jews in Europe the Greco-Roman Empire is his focus right now we'll get back to more of his lecture coming up here at JMN it's a Monday morning Rosh Chodesh morning thanks for joining us everybody 
Uh, well, you know that our friends, the Brooklyn Cyclones, uh, do an ama- they really do an amazing job reaching out to every community. It's not just us, by the way. They reach out to everybody anywhere in Brooklyn, New York, and beyond. It's one of the reasons they have so many people coming to their games on a regular basis. The envy of a lot of minor league teams, by the way, who can't put together uh, any type of crowd <laughs> during their games. And uh, the Cyclones, who are uh, who are home tonight, against the Aberdeen Ironbirds, and then tomorrow at 11.30 in the morning, that's right, it's an 11.30 day game tomorrow, they're going to be featuring Jewish Heritage Night come the 24th of August, which is a Thursday night. And that week, the 22nd of August, and I know we're giving a lot of information here, is the uh, next uh, Tuesday night fireworks night. And one other piece before I introduce Steve Cohen, and that is that Tisha B'Av is Tuesday, as everybody knows, a week from tomorrow, the next day which works out perfectly for our purposes. The next day, they start a nice long homestand with plenty of games on Wednesday, Thursday, Sunday. Uh, you can check it out and uh, get ready to enjoy. BrooklynCyclones.com is the website, BrooklynCyclones.com. Steve Cohen is with us, uh, who has been a guest of ours before. He is the uh, president of the Brooklyn Cyclones. Steve, welcome back to JM in the AM. Good morning, Nathan. Thanks for having Admire you guys because, uh, as I said, it's not just us. It seems that you uh, have made a collective effort over the years to really reach out to all communities in Brooklyn and beyond, and a lot of people are enjoying the game so far this year. Yes, we um, we do try to um, do that. Obviously, Brooklyn's a diverse community, so um, we try to uh, make sure we're, we're working with all the communities throughout the area. And oh, and, and that last week as well. And kudos to the Brooklyn Cyclones. And you've done this before. And you do it so well each time. And, in fact, I've seen you do it when, when tragedy has struck our community, frankly. Uh, in this case, it struck the entire New York City community because of the murder of a police officer, Familia. And you guys not only uh, paid recognition appropriately and, uh, and had a moment in her memory, but if I'm not mistaken, her family members were actually with you at the stadium that night. Is Steve there? We lost him. We seem to have lost him. <laughs> Just as I'm praising all the different things that he has done and continues to do for the New York City community. We'll get him back in a moment, hopefully. It's Monday here at JM in the AM. I mentioned earlier a big thank you to the Jewish Week. Uh, Hannah Dreyfus in the Jewish Week this week on page three included an article about what T-Mobile is doing to our listeners. Because our listen line is a free listen line for anybody who has unlimited dialing, unlimited calling. And they have gone ahead and, and figured out a way to charge a surcharge. Only them, no other service. So I thank Hannah Dreyfus for printing an article about it, page three of this week's Jewish Week, and hopefully there'll be some action that'll put an end to that practice. I think Steve Cohen is back with us. Steve, you there? I am here. Sorry about that. The point I was making is that, and, and we, we've had this in our own community, where you guys have recognized tragedy and difficult situations in our own community. In this case, it was really a tragedy for all of New York City, as you recognized and paid tribute to and asked for for um, a moment of silence for in memory of a police officer Familia. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, her family was actually at the stadium that night. They they were. I mean, it was it was also uh, NYPD night that ah. night, so we we invited the family out and. We did a, um, a whole bunch of fundraising activities for the family, and it, it really ended up being a special night. Um, the children and about 20 of her family members came to the game, and 
um, got to enjoy the, the game, but also uh, went out on the field throughout a first pitch. We recognized um, Officer Familia as part of our winning women um, promotion, um, promotion throughout the season, um, gave her kids the, the award, and had actually both managers uh, we were playing the Staten Island Yankees, so we thought it was appropriate. They, they are a city team as well. Um, and uh, had both managers, and actually both teams came out and, and recognized the, the children. And um, really, you, you could see that they just had huge smiles on their faces, which was really nice. Yeah, you, you always seem to do this stuff right, and I'm not quite sure, you know, if you could respond to that, frankly. But but you just you you, you and the Cyclones always seem to do that right um, when it comes to things like this uh, for the community, good and bad. Uh, so kudos to you for uh, for doing that and for uh, recognizing her. And for reminding everybody how important the NYPD is, I'm sure you affiliate, or I should say you associate as a, a public event venue, you're probably associated with the NYPD all season long. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, we do um, several things with them throughout the, the year, and um, we have a, good, a real good relationship just with our local precinct. And, um, you know, I think that's obviously real important. They, they put their lives on the line every day for us, so. Um, we want them to feel welcome at the ballpark. No question about it. All right, what happens tomorrow, Tuesday, at 11.30 in the morning? Yeah, well, so tomorrow is one of the few, uh, actually only weekday game uh, day games that we have. It's 11.30. Um, weather looks like it's actually supposed to be perfect, not too hot. Um, and it gives people an opportunity to um, take, take a day off from work or just bring the kids out to the ballpark, spend a few hours together. Uh, maybe come check out Coney Island afterwards, and uh, and just have a good, uh, good, good day, good fun day. At the- I think it's in the seventies, so um, be be a beautiful day to come out and uh, get the ocean breeze. My boys are going to be furious. The one afternoon game for the Cyclones, and they're out of town this week. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but we I'll- encourage we encourage everybody to take uh, take the day off and uh, and. Fall in sick, start getting that sore throat tonight, and and, and come to the ballpark tomorrow. Because nothing like the sunshine coming down at uh, at MCU yeah. Park is, uh, is nothing like that uh, compares exactly. w- w- when you're suffering from whatever malady you're going to have tomorrow. All right. Also, I mentioned, and this is specifically uh, directed at my listeners because of the um, uh, timing on the calendar. Uh, Tisha above is Tuesday, August first. Literally the next night, which is a big night for people to go out and just you know let loose a little bit. Literally, literally the next night, you guys start a six-game homestand for our listeners. The Wednesday night, the Thursday night, the Sunday night, the Monday night. Those are all great options coming up the first week in August. Oh, absolutely! And that that second that every Wednesday is um, ten dollars seats in the entire ballpark. So oh. every seat is ten bucks. Whether or not uh, you're in the front row or every every seat ten dollars, so oh, you can't so that's, beat that, that's, that deal. That's the first game of the homestand. That's perfect. That's that's the first game on that Wednesday. Then mm-hmm. we have we just have a slew of promotions and giveaways that entire week. Um, and then of course, um, like you said, for the for the your listeners, Sunday um, at four o'clock is um, a, a great day as well to come out to the ballpark and. Again, check out Coney Island and, and see a good baseball game. We play the uh, we play a Red Sox affiliate. Oh boy, oh boy, that's how you're that's, <laughs> that's how you're inviting into town, huh? 
All right. It, yeah. it, 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 it's going to be hot. I don't know what the temperature is going to be, but it's going to be hot in the ballpark that night. That's for sure. <laughs> it will be. And finally, on the 24th of August, and people got to keep this in mind. Well, I should mention first the 22nd. 22nd of August, those of you who want to pair a baseball game with fireworks, the next time they're doing it on a weekday is going to be Tuesday the 22nd of August. Then on the 24th of August, we're getting ready for Jewish Heritage Night. Um, you're going to do a whole bunch of stuff literally aimed at our community with a whole bunch of, uh, you do, I know you do great contests and, and games plus is a, a giveaway that night. So people out there should be, should feel not only uh, comfortable, but, uh, they should be raring to go, come on out to the ballpark and, uh, there's plenty of kosher food. That's always the case. You always have plenty of kosher food, but that night I'm sure you'll be doubling down on the kosher food for everybody. Oh yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And, uh, we'll, we have a giveaway. Actually, we're giving away 5,000, um, of the the home run apples from City Field, nice, um, nice, uh, replica apples, and um, so everybody pretty much will be able to get a get one of those when they come out. Um, we'll have kosher food. We'll do all the special promotions and entertainment throughout the game as well, and uh, we'll have someone throwing a special someone special throwing out the first pitch as well. Right? Phenomenal. Yeah, choose someone good, please. Choose <laughs> choose choose someone who could reach the plate. <laughs> well, I hope you're working on that. So. Oh, yes. Speaking of my boys, I better get, better get out there and practice a bit. Well, there you have it. BrooklynCyclones.com is all the information. BrooklynCyclones.com. A lot of stuff geared to our community. And as I said earlier, Cyclones really reach out to everybody and uh, make it a great family experience. You want a great family experience at any point, whether it's tomorrow afternoon, whether it's the day after Tisha B'Av, whether it's the 22nd for fireworks, whether it's the 24th for Jewish Heritage Night. There's so many great options, and uh, all of them that I just mentioned include great kosher food at the ballpark as well. Uh, Steve, continued success. Tell the team we're continuing to root for them every single night. Thank you very much. I will I will let them know, and um, hopefully we'll make a little run for the playoffs uh, before the end of the season. We certainly hope so. Everybody in Brooklyn deserves it, that's for sure. Take care, Steve. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Steve Cohen, president of Brooklyn Cyclones. There he is. A lot of great stuff for our community. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSegal.com, on the NachumSegal Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. We're going to continue with our Ibarra Wine series on Europe and the Jews. He's in the middle of a lecture entitled The Greco-Roman Empire. Uh, we will, um, I think uh, we will conclude this lecture with only one more interruption. We have one more guest who's going to be joining us from Israel. Uh, aside from that, we'll get to the end of this lecture before the end of JMNAM this morning. Rabbi Beryl Wine, his lectures at 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Into a different group called the Zdokim, the Sadducees, who were assimilationists who denied the validity of the oral law, who generally uh, were more culturally aligned with the Greeks than they were with the Jews. And they were very powerful because, again, they were the wealthier class. They were the tax farmers. And eventually they became the majority of the priests in the temple. So that you had a high priest in the temple, a Kohen Godel, who was a Zdoki, who didn't believe in anything. It was a job. And in fact, we have in the Mishnah in Yoma that the rabbis were forced to make the high priest take an oath that he would do the service properly because of the fact that we, we, uh, he, 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 you know, he was a, you know, he was a non-believer. So that was the situation. 
Now, when the rabbis, I'm sorry, when the Maccabees defeated the Greeks, they were justifiably afraid that the Greeks were going to make a comeback. That Greece would again come to conquer the land of Israel. So they made a uh, short-term tactical alliance which strategically was suicidal. The new boy on the block was Rome. Rome was just coming into power, having again united Italy under uh, the city of Rome and uh, began its expansion. Just as Greece wanted to conquer the whole world, Rome wanted to conquer the whole world. And Rome saw Greece as its enemy. So the Maccabees invited the Romans to send an army to the land of Israel. And they housed them in a city along the Mediterranean coast. And this was a legion The legion was about 10,000 troops that was housed permanently in the land of Israel. Well, you know, the the Talmud gives us the example that a man had uh, a cat in the house. And he wanted to get rid of the cat. So he brought in a bear. And the bear got rid of the cat, but he couldn't get the bear out of the house. He brought in Rome, and the Greece never was a threat again. But now you were stuck with Rome. Rome was different. Rome was different than Greece. Uh, The culture that Rome had, it took from Greece. Roman culture by itself was very, very primitive. Rome was much more violent. It did not have the sophistication that the Greeks had. And its paganism was much more violent. And the Roman gods, uh, the the Romans did not... uh, they did not have an inkling of monotheism. They did not have an Aristotle, though later they would have uh, uh, famous philosophers, but none of whom uh, ever equaled the uh, caliber of the Greeks. But the Romans uh, were bent on domination, and the Jews uh, were in no position to defeat the Romans at any time during their entire relationship. Every time they tried to do it, the Jews were crushed. The situation became worse instead of better. And that was the situation that brought about the destruction of the Second Temple. That was the situation of the defeat of Bar Kokhba. Uh, the, uh, the might of Rome was so great that... Uh, no, no one really had a chance. And the Romans were the first ones to open up Europe. They not only went in the Mediterranean basin, they not only conquered Greece and took over much of the Greek Empire, but they expanded. And uh, you have, for instance, the famous works of Julius Caesar, which, believe it or not, the yeshiva I went to, we studied in ninth and 10th grade in Latin. I look back at it, I tell this to my grandchildren, they think I'm from another planet. And uh, so he writes about uh, all Gaul is divided into three sections. And he writes his war about the, with the Gauls, with the French, and with the Germans, and with the Spaniards. Rome expands, Rome comes all the way to Britain. 
You can see Hadrian, you can see the wall uh, in uh, Great Britain today from the Roman times. Uh, Rome was uh, an unbelievable power. And uh, because of that, it had uh, tremendous influence. And it is the Romans who brought the Jews into Europe. Because wherever the Romans went, there was business. You had to have supplies for the army, uh, and all sorts of things, you know. The war, war is always the catalyst for commerce. And uh, because of that, Jews began to accompany the Roman legions on their missions of conquest. So they came to Europe too. And uh, even at the time the Second Temple is still existing in the land of Israel, you have a very large Jewish diaspora. Rabbi Beryl Wine is in the midst of a lecture entitled The Greco-Roman Empire as we feature his lectures during our nine days format. 1-800-499-WEIN for information. I recommend you check out his brochure, 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWine.com. Check out the list of lectures available. They are pretty amazing. Rosh Chodesh morning here at JMNAM as we've started our nine days format. I wanted to mention that um, if you go to uh, projector.org, projector.org.il projector.org.il they have a crowdfund for israel page that right now is raising money for a security system in Suf, chalamish this past friday night a terrorist broke into the yeshuv of Suf, chalamish entered the Solomon home. The Solomons were sitting down to eat dinner. We're about to celebrate the Shalom Zacher of her brand-new grandson. Their house was open to all who wanted to come celebrate. The terrorist entered and proceeded to stab the father, son, and daughter. Uh, that's the reason why uh, earlier I mentioned that uh, all through the morning we are remembering Yosef Chaya and Elad Solomon. The murderers are trying to weaken our yeshuv and our land. Therefore, we will strengthen ourselves, build, and make our foundations even stronger. We are asking you to join us and say no more. At this time, they're raising money to build an advanced security system featuring radar, smart cameras, in order to protect the yeshuv of Nevetsuf. Everyone is being asked to join the campaign. Again, if you go to the uh, website, you'll see they're trying to raise just over $112,000. They've raised a couple of thousand already. Uh, they have a month remaining to get this done. You could donate now. You know what? I think I'll put this on my. Uh, I think I'll put this on my Facebook page, so everyone will be able to see exactly how to. Uh, exactly how to uh, donate. All right, it's up there. If you go to my Facebook page, simply entitled Nachum Siegel, you'll see it says Nevei Tzuf responds with Zionist energy on the murder of the Solomon family. A new neighborhood and a large park will be built in their names. Projector.org.il All right, uh, we have a guest with us from Israel. Yaron Fischelson is with us. He's the head of a, uh, he's the head of product for an app 
ACT.IL, A-C-T dot I-L, a first-of-its-kind platform to activate the masses and create and uh, network international and professional communities acting together to promote Israel's image and fight the delegitimization and demonization of the state of Israel. Information about the ACT.IL initiative, you can check out the website, act-il.com, act-il.com. Yaron Fischelson, welcome to JM in the AM. Thank you, Nathan. Uh, thank you for inviting me. It's good to be here. I appreciate that. Uh, one of the most difficult things that uh, people around the world who love Israel go through is trying to uh, promote Israel's image as positively as possible and fight all the terrible demonization of the state of Israel that's going on, whether it's the college campuses, whether it's uh, in Europe, the U.S., or anywhere around the world. There have been efforts in the past. There have been initiatives in the past. There have been people like yourself in the past who've tried very hard to fight this. Why is this different? All right, that's a, that's a great question. I think uh, it all began uh, our experience in this uh, effort during the 2012-2014 operations Pillar of Defense and Protective Edge. Uh, so this project is a project that uh, was initiated here at the IDC, the Interdisciplinary Center in Herzliya, and we're partnering with the IAC, the Israeli-American Council. Uh, we started here the, the Situation Room, if, uh, if uh, you heard about that, where uh, a lot of volunteers came in during those operations. They, they heard about all the misinformation, disinformation, lies that were spread uh, on social media and decided to act together. And this was the basis to our understanding that when masses do things together collectively, it has much more impact on social media. So what we do at ACTIL is basically try to uh, create a one big community to act together. And when I'm talking about acting and online activism, I'm talking about things from um, the mere uh, you know, promoting uh, of comments to become the first comment. And we have uh, a team here. So I work with 13 interns that work here at IDC to create content online and to update the missions on the, the app. I'm going to say in a second what exactly it means. But that they are able to make the first comment that people see when they read something on the New York Times, on in BBC, Sky News, even Al Jazeera, and in major news sources, and giving sort of like a way to balance the narrative. So even if uh, the headline is non-biased, which is not the case oftentimes, and we, we need to work collectively to change that, and we just and we do it all the time, but even if it is biased, a lot of times people read the, the um, the comments and they receive false information from there. So from this point to an actual call to action, things on the ground that can uh, be moved and changed. So I'll give you an example. Uh, Radiohead, uh, the music band, uh, appeared in Israel uh, a few days ago, and Roger Waters, uh, the lead singer of Pink Floyd, uh, decided to have this conversation with the BDS movement, the boycott movement, uh, on social media, on Facebook. We knew about it in advance. We created, we did research here uh, to create sort of like a talking points, sent it out to all of our uh, users, our very active users, and were able to create a mission that's on the ground uh, while he was going up, uh, sort of like uh, presenting these tough questions and counter arguments to what he was saying. Uh, and these are things that we found to be very, very effective. This yep. is only step one. Right. But I think the difference here between what we do and what was done so far 
is the understanding that we need to act together. There are so many organizations, and we are not here to replace any of the existing uh, organizations that are doing a wonderful, wonderful job, but we are here to create a platform that will enable all of us to work better together, to cross-communicate and, uh, and be able to uh, enrich each other with the, each other's abilities. Your own Fischelson is with us, uh, act.il. Um, you can go to the web, act-il.com, act-il.com. All right, so a couple of things. First of all, you worked, you worked um, in your career in special ops. It looks like this is a special ops unit. This is as important, one might say, as some of the real physical special ops units out there as you try to gather thousands of people around the world to join this special operation. How do people mm-hmm. join? How do people become one of the members that you described? All right, so basically this is a community for everyone, and the idea is to enable anyone who wants to be active regardless of the time they have during the day or the amount of the, or the level of expertise to become active. So either download the app at the Play Store for Android users or the App Store for uh, iPhone users, or you can even use it from your computer. So if you go to app.act-il.com, that's app.act-il.com, you're able to log in from your computer, from your phone, and when you go in, you're part of the global community, and the global community is a community for everyone. Uh, and you're able, by a click of a button, uh, to reach different missions that uh, are prepared, updated daily, have the most current events hap- uh, that are happening, and to be active on social media. If what? you uh, want to work on Facebook, if you want to report incitement videos, there are a lot of inciting videos nowadays with all the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Uh, fiasco that's going on, so a lot of inciting videos calling people to be violent. So just go in and be active on social media, whichever social media you're, uh, is your favorite. What's there today? If someone goes there today, what's the latest thing you've asked people to consider? All right, so we always try to keep a balance, not only to, in, to, to, uh, to talk about um, let's, let's call it uh, the complex reality or the uh, Jewish-Arab conflict, but to, to still have a balance. Uh, we have three main uh, uh, things that we, like, that we balance between, the complex reality, inter, uh, international values that we have here in Israel, and also we call like the, the Israel's advances, technology, agriculture, art, etc. Your own. So if you go what, in today, what, what, you what's, have, what's there now? What's there now? All right. So that's what I'm getting to. Uh, so today we have things that are related to um, the story that uh, sadly happened yesterday in, uh, in Jordan, uh, where there are a lot of some false information. We have a mission that uh, calls out uh, certain uh, individuals who uh, started calling to uh, and uh, shaming the Israeli security guard at the Jordan embassy. We have some things about the uh, magnometers, the metal detectors uh, in Al-Aqsa Mosque. We have also positive things in Twitter, uh, some things that people wrote uh, about Tel Aviv in order to showcase that there's all, not only bad things that are happening here, and it's very important for people to understand, especially people who are not part of it, that Israel is not only about the conflict, but many things. It's a very complex area, so there are many things that are going on. You also have a few, as I said, uh, videos from YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook uh, for people to report that are actually now calling 
for violence, calling for an intifada, calling for people to stab Israelis, but stab Jews, teaching them how to do so. Uh, so you have all these sort of things to, uh, to do there. You also have some call to actions uh, when it comes to si either signing a petition or uh, supporting other initiatives that are starting uh, working to create uh, sort of like uh, bills uh, to support the combat against demonization of Israel in, in the U.S. So you have many, many things that have to, have to do with Israel on various social media. Where are your users coming from? Mostly Israel and the United States? Do you find people from other areas of the world as well? All right. So the main, our main, uh, uh, the main countries that our users are coming from are uh, Israel and the U.S. We, all, we also have a, a fairly large audience coming from the U.K., Canada, France, uh, but in general, we, we currently uh, up to date have 40 users from 41 different can countries. Um, some of them are surprising. We have one user from Vatican City, for instance. Uh, also, a variety of uh, age groups from uh, the, the youngest is a uh, 16-year-old and up to date, the, the eldest is uh, 79 years old. Uh, so a very, very uh, large variety of people, not only Jewish people, uh, also people who from uh, other faiths that also want to support Israel and support its image and fight its demonization. It's for anyone. Basically, anyone who wants to support Israel is welcomed and is part of uh, our mishpucha, uh, as we call it, and also are part of different communities. Uh, and Nahum, one thing that I didn't get a chance and I really want to emphasize is that Actel is also a place to create small communities that are based on different things such as geographical location, as I said, but also skills. So you have a community for graphic designers, community for video editors, for content writers, in order for all the community to actually collaborate and create content together and for each other's use. So if I'm a graphic designer who lives in Ukraine, I'm able to support a campaign that's happening across the world in the UK, in the U.S., in Australia, anywhere, basically. All right, Yaron Fischelson, one more time. If people are in their phones or on their phones, the best way to search for your app would be? In the App Store, uh, look for act.il, either if you're using an, an Android uh, device, so uh, in the Play Store, if you're using an iPhone, the App Store, act.il. If you're using a computer, put a, look for appapp.act-il.com. Kalaka vote for what you're doing. I hope it has a tremendous effect on uh, Israel's image around the world. Thank you. Thank you. We currently have uh, 10,000 downloads and users. We're, we're waiting to reach the 100,000. Uh, 100, Bezrat Hashem. Kalaka vote. Thanks so much for joining us. It's Yaron Fischelson. The act.il app is another, or really is a central way to join an online community for Israel and really help improve Israel's image around the world. And boy, we know how uh, difficult a battle that can be and how necessary a battle it is. More coming up. It's JM in the AM on this uh, Monday morning. We're in our nine days format. And I thank you very much for tuning in and being part of this amazing program. Uh, Mayor Weingarten at, at uh, 9 o'clock this morning with the uh, program on uh, Yerushalayim Shul Zahav. The, um... Oh, and you know what I forgot to mention to your own, which I wanted to? 
and, and I, I, I can guarantee we're going to be speaking about this more on this show this week. The Saturday New York Times headline about Friday night's terror attack was the following. Deadly violence erupts in standoff over mosque in Jerusalem. Six people ended up dead after an apparent terrorist attack in the West Bank and clashes in Jerusalem over metal detectors at the entrance to the Al-Aqsa Mosque. I, I mean, how anybody would dare blame this terror attack or attribute it or, or excuse it because of the metal detector situation to Harabayat is, is just absurd. And the New York Times did that in Saturday's paper. Par for the course, New York Times. All right. Um, Rabbi Burl Wine is with us. We are... Uh, we are presenting the um, the final piece of his lecture on the Greco-Roman Empire. We we have rewound a drop, so you'll be hearing uh, a part of our, what Rabbi Wine presented earlier, plus the conclusion to this lecture. Rabbi Wine and his lectures uh, information are available at one eight hundred four nine nine W E I N one eight hundred. 499-WEIN. You can also go to RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com for information. All right, more coming up. It is a Monday morning, Rosh Chodesh morning here at JM in the AM. Most of them were killed so that they wouldn't uh, cause problems. And uh, there were two main generals that he had. One was called Seleucus and one was called Ptolemy. And they agreed between themselves that they'd split the empire. So Ptolemy took the southern part, and especially the city of Alexandria, which Alexander had named after himself, and was became like the center of commerce and culture. And the other Seleucus uh, took the northern part, and he was in Antioch in Syria and Damascus, uh, in uh, what is today Baghdad, in that area. And so he had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. In between the northern and the southern kingdom is a little country <laughs> that is strategically located in a very bad neighborhood. And each of the uh, empires wants to control the land of Israel. Now the Jews traditionally for various reasons, always allied themselves with the Egyptian uh, emperor, with Ptolemy. The Talmud uh, calls him Talmai Amelech. Now, uh, if you can call somebody by his Greek name, now that, that was part of the invasion of the Greeks, is that they brought the Greek alphabet, the Greek language, to these countries. And in effect, Greek became the international language, much as uh, French was one time the international language, much as English is the international language. Greek became the, uh, the language all over Israel when they dig up the, when the archaeologists are able to uncover uh, artifacts from uh, the classical era, they're all written in Greek. There is synagogue, the signs in the synagogues are Greek. The signs in the temple were in Greek. And uh, the Greek language, because you're willing to call your child Alexander, 
you cannot say I'm not willing somehow to uh, have uh, Greek language as part of our culture. And this got a boost from Talmai, from Ptolemy. The Talmud tells us that he took 70 scholars, of, uh, whether that's reality or, uh, or legend, really makes no difference because out of it came something that certainly is reality. But he took 70 scholars and he put them in 70 different rooms and he had each one translate the Bible into Greek. And the Talmud records it as a miracle that the translations coincided. Some say the miracle was that he got 70 scholars to agree on anything. But but in any event, this becomes what is known as the Septuagint. Targum Hashivim. The translation of the 70. And it's a translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek. And the rabbis adjusted the translation uh, so that it wasn't quite literal in certain places because if it would have been literal, then it would have raised uh, theological and cultural problems. And this was a standard work, Targum Hashivim. We have it today as part of the Apocrypha. And it was well known. And through it the Hebrew Bible became known outside of the Jewish people. And uh, the uh, effect, both on Jews and non-Jews, was substantial. Because now for the first time, uh, the Jews had to defend their Bible, so to speak, against non-Jews who were uh, conversant with it, who knew it, and who had questions and arguments and disputes, etc. We find this throughout the Talmud uh, that uh, there was a constant give and take between the cultures. And uh, many Greek words found their way into Jewish life. Afikoman is a good Greek word. And there are many such words uh, that uh, fell into uh, common usage. So you have here, first time, a blend of cultures. The Greeks had a great effect on the Jews. And the Jews had less of an effect on the Greeks. Because the Greeks felt superior. Though they begrudgingly admitted that the Jews were something. That they were not barbarians. Now, uh, there arose amongst the Jews... The Jews that wanted to be more Greek than the Greeks, which is always what happens in a cross-cultural type of situation. Uh, the, uh, the most uh, French people are Jews who want to be French. Most German people were Jews who wanted to be German. Most American people are Jews who want to be American. So here you have people who want to be Greek. Now the Greeks were, were uh, the Greeks were art, statues, uh, painting, color. So all of that rubbed traditional Jewry wrong, because we are opposed to graven images, and uh, so uh, 
the great questions arose regarding sculpture, statues. Uh, the Greeks had theater. Now, part of the problem of the theater, uh, why the rabbis had such a negative effect, uh, ne negative view on theater, was because every theater performance was preceded by a sacrifice to the gods. That was like every baseball game is preceded by the national anthem. It was part of the ritual. So how can you go to the theater? It's it's uh, it's, it's paganism. On top of it, the theater many times was nudity and uh, immorality. And therefore, we always find in the Mishnah and in the Talmud a very strong objection to theaters. And later when the Romans came to circuses, because of the violence and, and uh, lewdness that was involved. But it came for the first time there were theaters. And uh, the Greeks uh, brought sports. They worshipped the physical body. And the Olympics were uh, old already. And uh, so they glorified. And in glorifying the human body... Uh, they were the first ones that openly objected to circumcision because they said that was a uh, violation of nature, a violation of the human body. It was disrespectful. And uh, the, uh, all of this together created a culture uh, that basically became anti-Jewish. And uh, it, there, were, there was a substantial number of Jews. It's estimated maybe a third of the Jewish population in the land of Israel that were Hellenist, that adopted the Greek ways, that did not circumcise their children, that, that participated in theaters, etc., etc., and uh, attempted to sway the entire Jewish people uh, to follow in that path. So the pressure was not so much from the outside as from the inside, from the Hellenist Jews more than from the Greeks themselves. Now, because of the continuing wars between the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, and the fact that the Jews always sided with the southern kingdom, when the northern kingdom in about the year 180 before the Common Era uh, was successful and conquered the land of Israel, took it away from the southern kingdom. So now they attempted to forcibly Hellenize the Jewish people. And to do so, they erected a uh, statue of Zeus in the temple. Uh, they uh, sacrificed pigs on the altar. Uh, they forbade circumcision on the pain of death. They created a uh, forced culture. And this was supported, as I mentioned now, by the Hellenists. And the Hellenists were wealthy. They were the tax farmers. Uh, they were the ones that were closest to the Greek government. Whereas the masses of Israel uh, were basically uh, not with them. And this is the story of Hanukkah. Uh, Matisio and his sons mount the revolution and they have a long series of wars 
but finally they are able to defeat uh, the Syrian Greeks, the Northern Empire, uh, for a variety of reasons, the Greeks had to withdraw. And uh, but that's a big but. Their culture did not leave the country, and therefore you find that all the Hashmonaim kings had Greek names. Alexander Yanai is Alexander Janius. Shlom Tzion Amalka is Queen Salome. They all had Greek names. They all had, and Greek culture remained in the country. And the rabbis had to deal with it. Some of it they adopted. Some of it they rejected. But it was a constant struggle. And uh, we, uh, for instance, we have uh, Western culture today. How much do we adopt and how much do we reject? So, for instance, the, the, the Greeks brought certain technology so they never rejected the technology. But if you accept the technology, you got problems, right? That's the smartphones today. So a kosher phone, this phone, that phone. But what happened here is that uh, the, 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 this culture of the outside came to the inside now. It's part of us. You know, on, on my old uh, CDs, no one announces turn off the cell phones. <laughs> So uh, the uh, the Greek culture remained, and the Maccabees eventually became more Greek than Jewish, which is one of the great tragedies in Jewish history, because the Hellenists morphed into a different group called the Zdokim, the Sadducees, who were assimilationists who denied the validity of the oral law who generally uh, were more culturally aligned with the Greeks than they were with the Jews. And they were very powerful because, again, they were the wealthier class, they were the tax farmers, and eventually they became the majority of the priests in the temple. So that you had a high priest in the temple, a Kohen Godel, who was a Zdoki, who didn't believe in anything, was a job. And in fact, we have in the Mishnah in Yoma that the rabbis were forced to make the high priest take an oath that he would do the service properly because of the fact that we, we, uh, he, he, you know, he was a, you know, he was a non-believer. So that was the situation. Now, when the rabbis, uh, I'm sorry, when the Maccabees defeated the Greeks. They were justifiably afraid that the Greeks were going to make a comeback. That Greece would again come to conquer the land of Israel. So they made a uh, short-term tactical alliance which strategically was suicidal. The new boy on the block was Rome. Rome was just coming into power, having again united Italy under uh, the city of Rome and uh, began its expansion. Just as Greece wanted to conquer the whole world, Rome wanted to conquer the whole world. And Rome saw Greece as its enemy. So the Maccabees invited the Romans to send an army to the land of Israel and they housed them in a city along the Mediterranean coast. And this was a legion 
the legion was about 10,000 troops that was housed permanently in the land of Israel. Well, you know, the, uh, the Talmud gives us the example that a man had uh, a cat in the house and he wanted to get rid of the cat. So he brought in a bear and the bear got rid of the cat, but he couldn't get the bear out of the house. You brought in Rome and the Greece never was a threat again. But now you were stuck with Rome. Rome was different. Rome was different than Greece. Uh, the culture that Rome had, it took from Greece. Roman culture by itself was very, very primitive. Rome was much more violent. It did not have the sophistication that the Greeks had. And its paganism was much more violent. And the Roman gods, uh, the, the Romans did not, uh, they did not have an inkling of monotheism. They did not have an Aristotle, though later they would have uh, uh, famous philosophers, but none of whom uh, ever equaled the uh, caliber of the Greeks. But the Romans uh, were bent on domination, and the Jews uh, were in no position to defeat the Romans at any time during their entire relationship. Every time they tried to do it, the Jews were crushed. The situation became worse instead of better. And that was the situation that brought about the destruction of the Second Temple. That was the situation of the defeat of Bar Kokhba. Uh, the, uh, the might of Rome was so great that uh, no, no one really had a chance. And the Romans were the first ones to open up Europe. They not only went in the Mediterranean basin, they not only conquered Greece and took over much of the Greek empire, but they expanded. And uh, you have, for instance, the famous works of Julius Caesar, which, believe it or not, the yeshiva I went to, we studied in ninth and 10th grade in Latin. I look back at it, and I tell this to my grandchildren, they think I'm from another planet. <laughs> And uh, so he writes about uh, all Gaul is divided into three sections. And he writes his war about the, with the Gauls, with the French, and with the Germans, and with the Spaniards. Rome expands. Rome comes all the way to Britain. You can see Hadrian, you can see the wall uh, in Great Britain today from the Roman times. Rome was an unbelievable power. And... Uh, because of that, it had uh, tremendous influence. And it is the Romans who brought the Jews into Europe. Because wherever the Romans went, there was business. You had to have supplies for the army, uh, all sorts of things, you know. The war, war is always the catalyst for commerce. And uh, because of that, Jews began to accompany the Roman legions on their missions of conquest. So they came to Europe too. And uh, even at the time the Second Temple is still existing in the land of Israel, you have a very large Jewish diaspora. First of all in Babylonia, in Iraq. So that, that, that diaspora was from already first temple times. There was a diaspora in Yemen. 
also from first temple times there was a diaspora in Ethiopia from biblical times and now you have a diaspora in Europe Jews settled in Rome they became part of Rome and then they accompanied the Roman legions so that there were Jewish outposts in Europe uh, long before the temple was destroyed and therefore you find in the Mishnah always that people went to the Medina Sayom to the state beyond the sea where is the Medina Sayom? the Medina Sayom implies that you had to get there by boat right? because it's a state by the sea well to go to Bovel you don't have to go by boat and to go to Yemen you don't have to go by boat and from the land of Israel to uh, most of uh, uh, Asia you don't have to go by boat but to go to Rome to go to Italy and to go up the Adriatic there you have to go by boat and Jews began to drift there so the Romans came to the Jews but the Jews started to come to Europe through the Romans now the Romans brought ideas of law of uh, technology of road building uh, and they incorporated into themselves all of the uh, culture of the Greeks which however in Rome became much more violent so uh, the sports now became not who was the better wrestler the sport became which of the gladiators would survive somebody was going to die that day guaranteed and then they brought animals to fight and all of the brutality uh, that uh, that were involved in Roman games and that was called the circus because of the fact that the theater the stadium was round and uh, so therefore in the, in the Gemara we find uh, Kirkasos right the, the one that should never go to a circus so they don't mean the uh, Ringling Brothers <laughs> But they, and we call it a circus also because it's always round the, where the performers are. Uh, but because of the fact that the circuses were so brutal and uh, violent and murderous, and uh, the Romans generally were uh, immoral, and you had orgies uh, in the Roman world, for instance, unlike our world. I'm waiting for the comeback. In the Roman world, fat was beautiful. It was uh, always held to be a sign of attractiveness. And therefore you find in the Mishnah it says, Marbe Bosor Marbe Rima. The more fat, you know, the more the maggots will have to eat. Uh, what did the rabbis mean by that? By that stark portrayal? Because people purposely made themselves obese because of the fact that that was fashionable the Romans had orgies of food and they would purposely make themselves regurgitate and vomit so they could eat again and every Roman dining room had what they called a vomitorium and uh, and they also had sexual orgies and the Roman uh, it, it was without limit and uh, Rome was built on slavery they brought slaves from all over the world they conquered everywhere so they brought Jewish slaves as well thousands of them 
after the destruction of the temple uh, tens of thousands of Jews were taken into slavery and after the defeat of Bar Kokhba, other tens of thousands were taken. So, for instance, the Roman Colosseum was built by Jewish slaves, 70,000 of whom died building it. So when people go, you know, people go to uh, places of Jewish tragedies and they want to say Kaddish or they want to have a moment of silence or respect, you should know that if you go to the Roman Colosseum, you can say Kaddish there too because it was mainly Jewish slaves that built it and the slave's life was worthless and they didn't have the type of machinery and construction that we have today so people fell off of scaffolding and people were crushed by stones and all sorts of things you know so that's the way it was you know nobody uh, nobody got nervous about it and when the to- when the medrash says in the tower of babel you know the famous medrash that you all know that if a person fell from the tower, uh, you know, if a brick fell, oh, vey, how are we going to look at it? It's going to cost us so much more to get that brick up to the 16th floor. But if a person fell from the 16th floor, it didn't mean anything. They are not talking only about the Tower of Babel. They're talking about Rome. But they can't say it. And therefore, many midrashim on past occurrences have to be understood as speaking to the Roman world in which it was written. But that you couldn't say it for fear of reprisal, for fear of punishment that the Romans would visit upon you. So it was all right to say that at the Tower of Abel, if somebody fell off the scaffold and got killed, they didn't care. Yeah, the Romans didn't care either. But if you said the Romans don't care, so then you're in trouble. And uh, so that has to be borne in mind when we learn Medrash. And when Medrash speaks about events that occurred in biblical times, many times the Medrash is not only referring to what biblical times, it's referring to its own time, but that is how it has to refer to it. That is how it has to say it. Just as uh, we have, for instance, uh, we'll talk about it when we get to talk about Tsarist Russia and the Jews, uh, Europe under the Tsars, uh, that uh, there are uh, tremendous, tremendous complementary things about the Tsar written in the introduction to great Jewish rabbinic works. If you read it, you would think that the Tsar was the best thing since rye bread. Uh, it's just wonderful but you have to know the inside story the inside story is that it's all sarcasm that you're supposed to somehow understand that the opposite is true so when the book was written let's say in 1870 everybody knew what it was but when you read it in 2015 you know and the, I've, I've had the young men in the yeshiva come and say oh, yeah, how, could, how could he write you know the Zara's, it's, you're like you don't get it so a medrash also is something that you have to get you have to understand what they're talking about and uh, most of the uh, what shall I say, anti-Roman uh, literature that exists in the Jewish world is in the Medrash. But it doesn't mention Rome. But it's all there. So uh, so again, like that example of uh, not to be obese is because obesity was a Roman trait. 
the idea against nudity, the idea against uh, sexual immorality, which the Talmud talks about that even permissible things. So like, what was their hang-up? What were they so nervous about? Well, in our time, we can understand what they're so nervous about. And uh, therefore, uh, Rome and Greece were homosexual societies. And everything went. Bestiality, everything went. Everything was permitted. Not only permitted, it was part of the culture. And therefore, everything that the rabbis have to say about it is because of this background. And uh, to look back at it, uh, if we look back at that period of time, and we realize that Judaism survived, and that the Jewish people survived. Remember, if you're living in the middle of the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire lasted over 500 years, and it conquered the world, and everything is Roman. So let's say you live in the year 350 out of the 500. So you think the Roman Empire is going to be there forever. You can't imagine that Rome is not going to be there. Just as... uh, For instance, in our time, if somebody would have told you in 1955 that the Soviet Union was going to collapse, what are you talking about? We want to be with the Soviet Union forever. There is no forever, except for us. But uh, that is uh, the background in which all of this occurs. So the influence of Greece and Rome on the Jews was substantial. And the pressure was substantial. And the Jewish people became small in numbers under Greece and Rome because of slavery, because of Hellenism, because of the pressure, so that the Jewish people were reduced to a very small number, probably no more than two million by the time the Romans collapsed. And uh, that remained a small number throughout the Middle Ages. Really, till the 19th century, you didn't have great Jewish numbers again. And all of this was because of this influence of the Greeks and the Romans. Now, the undoing of the Greeks and the Romans, we'll talk about next time, is when the Christian world came into being. Christianity undermined both Greece and Rome, and it converted Greece and Rome to Christianity, which now has a different problem with the Jews. The problem with the, the, the Romans and the Greeks had with the Jews was cultural and national. The problem that Christianity is going to have with the Jews is a completely different problem. It's one of religion, it's one of belief, it's a, it's a whole different idea and a whole different challenge. So I thank you for coming tonight, and the Mirz Hashem will see you next Saturday night again. Call to JM in the AM, Monday morning, Rosh Chodesh morning. I thank Rabbi Beryl Wine, uh, Greco-Roman Empire, the name of that uh, lecture from the um, series entitled uh, Europe and the Jews. And uh, tomorrow we get the opportunity to hear, just checking out, how we're going to start tomorrow morning. Uh, tomorrow we get the opportunity to hear the uh, Eastern Orthodox Church lecture, the Eastern Orthodox Church. Uh, that'll be part three of the five-part series on Europe and the Jews. Um, actually, it's part three of the series entitled Europe and the Jews, part one. <laughs> it's like, uh, I think there's ten total, five part one, five part two. We're in the middle, or I should say we're about to start the third lecture. That's how we'll begin uh, tomorrow morning. JM in the AM on this Monday. It's Rosh Chodesh. 
Rosh Chodesh Menachem Av, and I thank you for joining us. I mentioned earlier, and I posted on Facebook, that there is a crowdfunding um, a crowdfunding campaign um, for Nevei Suf, for a security system for Nevei Suf, a more advanced one than the one they have now. Um, the terror attack, which took the lives of uh, three members of the Solomon family on Friday night, has really jarred the Jewish community worldwide, to say the least. If you'd like to participate in the crowdfunding campaign for the community, go to my uh, Facebook page, simply entitled Nachum Siegel, my profile, and you'll see that I uh, shared that. I shared the um, information on how you can uh, donate and support the cause. Hey, I want to wish happy birthday to listener Cena. Listener Cena's wished a uh, happy birthday from all of us here at JM in the AM. Uh, by the way, Rabbi Kramer mentioned on our app earlier, he asked if the people at ACT.IL have a way to um, be alerted to videos and headlines that are around uh, uh, the world. And yes, if you email them, they'll be uh, very receptive to uh, whatever it is you'd like to inform them about, whether it be videos or headlines or articles, etc. I mentioned the New York Times uh, headline from this past Saturday, Outrageous the way it equated or, or made the terror attack in Chalamish seem like it was part of the whole um, protest about the metal detectors at the Kotel, at the at Harabayat. Just ridiculous. Um, but if you have anything you need to tell them or want to tell them, then certainly you could be in touch with them uh, directly. And uh, if you missed that interview, that conversation about their efforts, then you can go ahead and... Um, go to their website and to check it out or just to listen to our archives at some point. want to say good morning to all of our friends up at Camp Misora. Uh, they are um, enjoying 62 degrees up there in Guilford, New York. We say hi to our friends at Camp Misora. I want to remind everybody that we have a big day here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Even though it's a nine days format, nonetheless, we still have a big day here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Coming up at 9 a.m., just a couple of minutes from now, Mayor Weingarten Celebrating 50 years of the return of the Jewish people to Jerusalem, analyzing the holy sources of Jerusalem of gold, Yerushalayim Shel Zahav, that make it a modern tefillah and much more. At 10 a.m., Yoni Pollock with After Further Review, an analysis of the latest news highlights and information in the world of sports. Uh, I would guess Yoni's going to mention the big Yankee victory yesterday, their first series victory uh, since June 10th. Um, what else might he mention? Maybe the big Dodger injury. He may talk about that. He may talk about uh, two people on the Astros that that everyone seems to keep talking about. I just can't remember their names. (laughs) So he may mention that. And I'm sure other news from the NBA, maybe even the NFL. Yoni Pollock with uh, After Further Review at 10 a.m. David Lichtenstein discusses self-driving cars and halacha, staying spiritually safe in the workplace and on business trips, and stem cell meat in halacha, all coming up. At 11 a.m., an encore presentation of headlines. So a big day here, especially this morning here at the Nahum Single Network. I want to take this opportunity to thank Hannah Dreyfus. Hannah Dreyfus, in a page three article in the Jewish Week this past week, uh, discussed the uh, T-Mobile situation and how it affects our listeners. Um, many of you might be aware of the fact that T-Mobile has found a way to charge those who have unlimited calling. Yes, to charge those who have unlimited calling. Uh, for tuning in to us. 
And that is um, quite distressing to us and many of our potential listeners and many of our listeners. Um, so I thank her for pointing it out and for writing the article. And uh, yeah, we are officially, officially, as I said on Facebook recently, anti-T-Mobile, not recommending them to anybody. And until they return, or I should say they refund or, or remove that charge, that fee. And um, if you're looking for a cell phone service, I'm going to ask you to check out any service that does not start with a T. There are no others that start with a T, right? Just T-Mobile. So don't go to the ones that start with a T. Go to the ones that uh, start with another letter, <laughs> whether it's an A or an S or whatever else it is. Um. A special shout-out to our friends at Eden Walk and Kosher Poke on 34th Street in New York City. I posted yesterday that Kevin, meaning Kevin Conan and his staff, are raring to go with their nine days menu. They are at 43 East 34th Street, and they do have about 15 dishes dedicated to nine days uh, fare, plus their Kosher Poke and Sushi Bar. Um, it's open today. We hope to see them later on. And they have a complete vegetarian nine days menu, which includes appetizers and soups and lo mains and seafood, mock chicken, mock shrimp, salmon steaks, and much, much more. So go to Eden Walk and or Kosher Poke, 43 East 34th Street in New York City. They have an amazing nine days menu. You can actually see it if you go to my profile on Facebook. You'll see that I posted the pictures of the menu. And to Kevin Conan and to his entire staff, we say uh, Kol HaKavod from all of us here at JM in the AM. All right. Even during the nine days, we have people that need to be recognized and praised, in this case for their dedication and service to the hungry Jewish community. Um, what else do we have here? I think that's it. Tomorrow we'll continue with Rye Barrel Wine and the series on Europe. Don't forget, Rye Wine's lectures are available to you, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com, RabbiWEIN.com, so you could check that out. And... Um, trying to see what else. Don't forget, on Tisha Above itself, a week from tomorrow... Charlie Harari and Project Inspire will be spending the last two hours of the fast with everybody. We'll give you more details on that as we uh, as we continue. And this coming Wednesday, I will present, as I do every uh, third day of Av, uh, this coming Wednesday I will present uh, my father's eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. We'll do that at 8 o'clock in the morning approximately, Eastern Time. It is a, an amazing snapshot of uh, the life and influence of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Around the world on the web at NachumSegal.com, on the NachumSegal Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. Mayor Weingarten, The Israel Show, Jerusalem of Gold, Yerushalayim Shulzahav, celebrating 50 years of the reunification of Jerusalem and discussing the incredible song and prophecy and tefillah, if you will, of Naomi Shemer. It's all coming up next between 9 and 10 this morning here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Yoni Pollock, brand new edition of After Further Review. If you love sports, 
We've got the sports show for you between 10 and 11 a.m. Eastern time right after the Israel show. Have a fabulous Rosh Chodesh Monday. Tomorrow we're back starting at 6 a.m. Till then, Nachum Segal reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future. Thank you.